When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It is my great pleasure to be here. Always a real thrill to be able to talk to you, no matter the circumstance. But uh, it is certainly a real pleasure whenever I get to be joined for an entire hour by a fan favorite. And yes, a lot of people have been requesting him. It's been a couple of weeks since he's been uh, on the radio with me, but. The questions about what we're seeing in the night sky, the questions about what we're seeing in space, the questions about what the stars portend, not astrologically, but astronomically, they are lingering. And the go-to expert on all of those subjects is the man who I believe is not only incredibly well-informed, but probably the man with the best voice in all of radio, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise, certainly a great deal of interest in both astronomy and space in general. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio, as always. 77 WABC, thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Now, uh, I I think we have to probably b- begin with this James Webb telescope. We've been sort of using you as our expert to give us play-by-play on what the James Webb telescope offers in terms of promise. If people are just tuning into us, if people haven't heard our previous conversations, what is this James Webb telescope? Where's it going? Why is it such a big deal? And then whether people have been following us or not, tell us what images the James Webb telescope has been delivering. Well, right now, Frank, we'll talk about the most technologically advanced machine that's probably been built by humans. It supersedes the Hubble Space Telescope by light years, no pun intended. But the object was launched on Christmas Day from French Guiana aboard a very large rocket called an Ariane 5. And that rocket is purposeful because not only was the James Webb Telescope size the issue to get it into a spacecraft that could get it out into space, it actually was launched in the proper configuration nearest toward the equator. Because this rocket launched again using the Earth's rotation speed, where it's much higher than other latitudes, let's say, in the north. So the spacecraft has been out there in space now for some 31 days, 17 hours, 45 minutes, and 23 seconds. And I'm checking that right off the NASA website that I'm going to encourage all the listeners to go to if they're concerned about this in greater detail. And I'm sure they are. It's jwst.nasa.gov. That's jwst.nasa.gov. One of the most technological spacecraft ever. 
it's moved out to a position now. It's 100% of where it's supposed to be at this balance point, we call it. Call it a Lagrange point. And it's one of these points, they call it L2, where the spacecraft needs to be far enough away from the Earth, the sun and the moon, so that it can conduct the kind of science that it needs. So, Frank, this spacecraft has been traveling over the last time we spoke. And for those people that are you know, not able to have tuned in then, it's now, again, successfully at its Lagrange point. They just did the other day an L2, what they call it, insertion burn. So they have rocket motors on there to absolutely get it into this, what they call a halo orbit. It's not just going to sit there. It's going to actually orbit around a loop at that distance. And there's reasons for that. And the, simplicity, you know, the simple reasons for that are it needs to be in a position where the optics and the electronics can be on the dark side of the space. Mm. Figure, figure an object the size, let's say, a tennis court. On the sun side, the temperature right now is 129 degrees Fahrenheit. But on the dark side, which is only separated by about six feet of five layers of this like material, if you've ever seen an emergency blanket that you'd use when camping, like that little silver blanket, it's a material called Kapton. But on that cold side, Frank, it's 347 degrees below zero, and that's where the optics and the electronics need to operate because this is an infrared telescope, but it will not be giving us images, interestingly enough, until probably June or July. Now, uh, the, the where is the telescope right now in with respect to distance from the Earth? Where is it in the where in the galaxy? Not where in the world, but where in the galaxy is the James Webb Telescope? Very interesting question, because if you would go out in the nighttime sky and we can navigate and give all of those listeners here on 77 WABC a good bit of information on that. If you were to look into the night sky and look at the constellation of Orion, which is actually high in the sky, if your skies are clear right now, maybe more toward the southern sky, there's a brilliant star in the left edge of Orion called Betelgeuse. And now, again, not having a telescope in hand here, but just describing in the generalist way. This object in space would be in a constellation called Monoceros, the unicorn. So just to the lower left of that bright star, Betelgeuse. So it's out there. But remember, it's only about a million miles away. And I say only. It's certainly no distance like billions of miles or not even light years. So in other words, it's a million. It's 907,530 miles to be exact right now. So it's far enough away where it needs to work. But if you looked at it or tried to find it from the ground, looking up in the sky, that's where it would be in the sky on the sky chart in, the, in what we call the constellations. All right. So we're not going to see images until June or July. How long is the James Webb telescope going to be in place up there in space? How long can we how many weeks, months, years can we expect it to be up there transmitting images? Well, NASA and scientists on the whole team are hoping that it's going to be 10 years plus to be able to do that. And I'm thinking so far, because everything's gone like clockwork, unlike the original launch of the Hubble Space Telescope when it had flawed optics. But we have to remember, there's a lot of things in here that maybe the public doesn't really, uh, or they weren't told, and not for any secret reason. There's a lot of artificial intelligence in this thing, too. So, in other words, it has to be able to be able to sustain itself and do things and maneuver because we simply can't, what, Frank, go out and do a service sure. mission like they did with the Hubble and the astronauts that were brave enough to get out there and fix the bad optics. We're joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you have questions about anything happening in space or anything with respect to the stars or the night sky, give us a call, one 800 848 
WABC. That's one 9222 Obviously, a lot of the big news has to do with the James Webb telescope. I'm doing a survey. So if, have, until, so if you have questions about that, you can call in and uh, and give us a call about that. Now, there have been a couple of space disasters uh, of late, and uh, there are some things that we're, we're seeing and uh, some things that might be harbinger of other things to come. What are we seeing in terms of not such good news? Well, Frank, this is a very solemn week for people in the space industry, not just America, but around the world. And going back in our time capsule right here, we have actually this week two and they're pretty much on everybody's mind if they've followed space or even in the news. We go back to January the 27th of 1967, a very sad and tragic event when the Apollo 1 crew totally perished in a horrific fire that probably could have been prevented. The short story on that is three astronauts, Grissom, Chafee, and White. Gus Grissom probably would have been the first man on the moon in the pecking order as NASA had. But what happened on that day, they did a test where they were in full 100% oxygen, the environment. And the way the story goes, the short version is they were communicating with the capsule, and there was a lot of problems mm. with the communications. They couldn't hear each other on the microphones. And one of the astronauts in there, I'm not sure which one of the three, said something to this effect, hey, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk within 20 feet of each other? Well, something happened in there, and the general quick story is there was probably a frayed wire inside from the contractor that built that original capsule. And when you're in 100% oxygen and the pressures in there are just so great, they perished and burned alive, which is so sad. Mm. And another reason they couldn't get out is the doors that they had on there. It just wasn't one simple door to open. It was a complicated series of latches and hatches. And even if they could try to get out, it probably would have taken them such a long time. So we can memorialize those that perished. And also the one that's most prolific to most people out there is January the 28th of 1986, the shuttle Challenger disaster that so many of us remember, and then moving on to next month into early February, February 1st of 2003, the bad deorbit of Shuttle Columbia in which the entire crew perished. So very sad in American space uh, science and American space exploration. We all know this, Frank, space is exciting, but the risks can be extremely high. Well, that's for sure. And the Challenger, I and mean, look, the Columbia and the Challenger, both incredibly sad, but the Challenger was even more so because there was a school teacher on board and a lot of classrooms all around the country were watching it live as this explosion took place. Remind us, what exactly was the problem with the Challenger? It was, it, it was certainly not human error. I guess it was mechanical. Well, Frank, it gets into politics, but I'll go straight to the, que- the answer to the question. There was a problem with an O-ring or the O-rings that were on the solid rocket motors. They knew that day, and I say political because the temperatures were horrific. I mean, there was ice dripping off the launch pad. And all they had to do was to say, no, we're not going to go for launch today. But what happened is, and I don't know the backstory of this, but again, they wanted to get that baby off the ground. And they knew that they had the first teacher in space, Krista McAuliffe, on board. So they had a time schedule. And as we all know, the rocket launched some 73 seconds into the flight. Among thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that watched, We know that something happened where the O-ring was weakened and the fire from the solid rocket motors. Remember, those solid rocket motors are not what most people think. They were made up of material that was like the eraser material like you would see, not the rubber material, but solid like that. So there's really no way to shut off an SRB once it lights. It just has to burn. So it burned through one of the uh, O-rings. 
And that O-ring flame got into the large tank, which is filled with the fuel that makes the shuttle engines run on the, on the orbiter itself. So lo and behold, you had a fire, and that was horrible and a disaster there. Some say that the spacecraft, actually, that they lived as they, you know, when, when the crew compartment separated, they're saying that they actually lived on the ride down, but the impact on the ocean was what separated them and, and killed them. Hmm. Uh, uh, horrific. Absolutely horrific. You, you mentioned the disaster that took place on uh, January 27th with respect to Apollo 1. That was before the moon landing. That was before Americans or even world citizens were in the habit of going to space and in the habit of going to the moon. I would have thought that there would have been a serious movement in this country after a horrible space disaster in which uh, I guess it was three astronauts that were killed. I would have thought there would have been a movement to totally pull the plug on going to space. Let's not risk any more lives. Let's not risk any more disasters. Not Let's not spend any more money. Let's concentrate on the problems here on Earth. Why didn't Apollo 1 and the disaster of Apollo 1 result, and I'm certainly pleased that it didn't, but why didn't, didn't it result in the end of the space program? Well, there was too many assets there, and obviously President Kennedy was the one who made the statement about doing this before the end of the decade and landing and returning a man, you know, on the moon and back to the Earth safely. There was a lot of impetus in there, and you're right. There probably would have been, and there probably was in the halls of Congress, lots of congressmen and senators that said, no, this is not going to happen. But the powerful lobby and the space program, and thank goodness it continued, but the astronauts themselves wanted to see this continue, and they knew. I mean, each of those astronauts, like we're talking Grissom, Chafee, and White, they were like brothers, and they all stuck together because they realized, you know, this is one tight family, but the short answer is, obviously, history says that they continued, which is a good thing. But there were some forces to say to stop. And that was also the thing what happened after with the, with the shuttles. They were looking at maybe stopping them for good. But they continued because they had funds in the budget and they had to perfect the imperfections that they had in some of them. But the most sad of them, of, of the three, I think, I mean, all of them are sad, was the one that happened on the ground. And I remember going down to the Kennedy Space Center on one of the tours and being part of the media I was asking them, the space people at NASA, if there was an opportunity to go beyond where the general public goes, and not to take pictures or do a, you know, a documentary, but I was given permission with a few other people to go to the actual test stand where the memorial plaque is to the Apollo 1 astronauts, and all it is is a large concrete stand where the rocket sat. But that was one of the saddest days in America because that was big news in this country, as it should be, because we lost three American heroes that mm, day, too. That's for sure. Now, one of the people that uh, was, I don't want to say happy, but who readily stepped forward to take the blame for that Apollo 1 disaster was uh, James Webb. Now, we, we all talk this week and in the last few months about the James Webb Space Telescope. Some people probably think it's named for the composer Jimmy Webb. Other people think it's probably named for the former U.S. Senator from Virginia, uh, Jim Webb. Wh who exactly was James Webb? What do we know about his life, his career? What was his big contribution to the space program? Well, he was one of the original administrators of NASA. And interestingly enough, Frank, as time went on, thank goodness the James Webb Telescope, as we're reporting here on, the, on your show live, is now in a very stable and, and very promising position. All is, all is well. But things were not all well with the funding of this particular spacecraft. It was supposed to be done a long time ago. There was battles for more funding from Congress. They got their money. 
There was projections and building this. There were delays. Then there were launch delays. Then there was a threat, as I think I mentioned in previous shows, where there was some actual terrorist threats of trying to hijack the ship and hold that space telescope for ransom because it had a long ocean journey. But James Webb, one of the original administrators of NASA, but there was another controversy that came about where some people believed, and I'm not saying I believe it, I mean, I don't know the whole story, I'm just reporting what I have read, is that he was a misogynist and he had some issues that, you know, they didn't like in the modern day culture today. They wanted to see that they, you know, disqualify the name of James Webb for the telescope, mm. but they kept it. But he was one of the original administrators of NASA to hold the glue together, as we talked about before, to move forward and continue the space program after this horrible disaster with Apollo 1. Right. He was a pioneer in space exploration yes. and a pioneer in being canceled and targeted by the, by the masses. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We are going to take your calls, your questions, your comments for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Let me begin with Al here in Manhattan. Hello there, Al. What do you want to say to Dr. Sky? Good morning, Frank. Dr. Sky is just about uh, one of your best guests. Uh, agreed. Agreed. And very, very oh, informative, always entertaining, and, you know, provides this, uh, a, a, a good snapshot of what's happening with space, but in a way that, you know, anybody can understand. Right. Even uh, yeah, dullards like me. Absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah, nice I have of you, Al. questions. Go ahead, sir. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've been to, like, 49 states. The most stars I ever saw was in Yellowstone. It looked like a whole star. There were stars, but no sky. But then I heard that you can only see 6,000 stars at any given time. Right. So I was wondering, is that true? And, and, and then one other thing is, could you ever comment? I know that uh, over the course of the space program, I think like 19 astronauts have died between yes. America and Soviets. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of the guy named Komarov, Vladimir Komarov? Yes, I have. And that was also Can you another tell space. Frank space and maybe uh, the, the audience sure. uh, the, the story, like his last words and all that. And I'll get Absolutely. off. Thanks very much. No, no, no. Al, I appreciate the fine comments here. But to answer your questions, if you go out to places sure. like Yellowstone that you saw the sky, at oh, any one time, and yeah, then I saw the northern lights. Say, Astronomers say you probably, on a super dark, moonless night, can see about 6,000 stars. Trust me, I've been doing this a long time, and I've never counted that many, but I can tell you, you're a brother, because I look up at the sky, too, there, and in Arizona, and I say it's great. But the point well, is... You're in New York, only... you can't count 60. You know, I'll tell uh, you the truth. That's it. Oh, yeah, with the light pollution. It's but sad. Hey, we see how popular this is, Frank. Everybody loves the sky. But Absolutely. What I can tell you, Al, in a short answer here, is that... Any place that you look in the sky, obviously, you can see hundreds of stars in some semi-dark locations, but they're based on Uh what they call magnitude. So the faintest star of that 6,000, people say the limiting uh, magnitude of a star that you could see with normal eyes, what's that, is plus six on the magnitude scale. Now, I don't have good eyes. I wear glasses. I could probably see on a dark night, even out in Arizona, maybe, maybe plus four, which as you go down the number scale on the plus side, they get brighter. Then you get to zero, and then things go negative, and they get really bright. But it's interesting, I mean, it, just to see the nighttime sky. But Komarov, the person that we're talking about here, Frank, and Al, oh, is, real one sad. The, is one of the Soviet cosmonauts. His reentry into the atmosphere was horrible because his spacecraft literally just came crashing through the atmosphere and to keep it, you know, respectful. To and what he knew it the whole time ahead of time. Absolutely. He knew he was probably going to die, and more than like 80%. But he came and he to cursed the at them. He says, you're killing me, and, you know, I'm oh, burning yeah. up now. And he oh, cursed yeah. and cursed. The, the reentry was wrong. The angle of attack coming in was wrong. So, sadly, 
not only the United States, but we've lost a lot of Soviet uh, cosmonauts and others. And one of the most horrific ones, if I can just mention this quickly, Frank, is that the Soviet Union tried to build a rocket bigger than the Saturn V, and they mm. succeeded. It was called the N1. Look it up, folks, on, on the you know Google. The N1 like rocket. Feet tall. Oh, it was monstrous, but it had the weirdest thing. It had a bunch of tiny engines, something like what Musk is doing on his big you know, heavy lift rockets. But simply what happened to cut to the chase is that their director of their space program and a whole bunch of uh, Soviet you know, authorities in space, they witnessed the launch. It exploded, and it killed so many of their team. And that's probably one of the reasons why they gave up on the moon mission, but it was a gigantic disaster and a most horrific explosion. So, Al, I hope that answers some of the uh, questions. Absolutely. I learned a lot. I didn't know anything about that. It's an interesting chapter in the history of space exploration. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Bill in Huntington. Bill, you're on with Steve Cates. Does a white dwarf have sunspots? Probably not. And it's interesting just to define, Bill, good morning, what this particular type of star is. When we say a white dwarf, the best example I can give you, both Frank and, and Bill, is if you look at the star Sirius in the sky, which is the brightest star in the sky, and if your skies in New York are clear, it's probably high up into the southern sky. You can't miss it. But it has a tiny little star called the Pup, which is a white dwarf. So it's more likely that the white dwarfs are not going to have sunspots because they're a different type of chemical or chain reaction that's taking place on these particular stars. What they are is super compressed material. So if you took the old analogy, if you took a teaspoon of a white dwarf star material, it probably would weigh as much as an aircraft carrier, and more than likely, they probably don't have sunspots or star spots, but they do have something else, Bill, that's really strange. A lot of these stars and neutron stars have what they call star quakes, and what the heck would that be? Not going to have sun. So, Al, I hope that answers. Yeah, they wouldn't have a sunspot, but they would have star quakes because of the instability of the surface of those stars. They're just super compressed material. All right, we're going to take a, uh, a break in just a moment. We'll continue with your questions, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Frank Morano here with uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. A, if you want to learn more about his work and monitor some of the writings that um, that he's made on various subjects related to space, the stars, uh, so on and so forth, you can go to ktar.com. A ton of great stuff on there. I steal from it regularly. But for those of us that have to live on Earth, we have to deal with the very real prospect of inflation. Uh, inflation is inflation is something that is here and it appears to be getting worse. We're now at the worst level that we've seen in 40 years. And uh, if you look at the supply chain problems, if you look at the problems with debt, if you look at the problems that we're experiencing with um, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, people not being able to fill the jobs that they have in terms of uh, opening. There are a lot of soft spots in the economy. That's to say nothing of the stock market. Well, if you look at the last time the stock market was trending in a downward direction, look at 2008. When the stock market collapsed back then, Americans lost their retirement, but not those that were invested in gold. Those that were invested in gold saw big gains and avoided the financial carnage. So if your money is sitting in a traditional retirement account, it's getting eaten away right under your nose. Gold and precious metals can offer a hedge against inflation and protect your retirement. That's why gold 
should really be a part of every wise investor's portfolio. And Legacy is the company that you can trust because they give you unbiased information based on your individual situation. Contact Legacy Precious Metals today. Call 866-932-0635. That's 866-932-0635. Or you can visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. You go to that website, you can request some information from free, and they're going to ask you where you heard it. Tell them you heard about it from me, Frank Moreno. WABC. You're hearing things. You're hearing things. On 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by one of our most popular guests, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, broadcasts on, on a whole bunch of issues, but we, in this capacity, use him as an edutainer who happens to know a great deal about astronomy and space. You can learn more about him and read his blog by going to ktar.com. And Steve, uh, you actually know some things about what's happening on Earth as well. I was listening to the Cats Roundtable uh, either last Sunday or the previous Sunday, and and you were um, incredibly informative on what happened with this volcano explosion, this Hungatanga volcano explosion. What exactly do we know about this volcano explosion? Why is this so unique, something like this? Well, Frank, it's a short story because, well, it's actually a long story. This is a particular undersea submarine volcano. What's that? You know, I thought when I heard submarine, I'm looking for something like the sea view from, you know, way, way back in the 1960s show, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. But it's a giant volcano called Honga Tonga in the area of the island nation of Tonga that's been venting off material and gas for quite a while, a number of years. But lo and behold, on January the 15th, out of the blue, the relative, I mean, the, the, the natives in Tonga and other islands witnessed this most horrific explosion. What happened? It really blew. A satellite in space, a couple of them actually, one of our GOES weather satellites and a Japanese satellite actually caught the explosion. Did, did you ever see that image? Uh, I did, yeah. It was uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Right. So you see this thing erupting from the ocean, and then you see this thing called gravity waves. You see this ripple. But here's the most amazing thing about this. The sound of this explosion was heard all the way in Australia. That's far. That's over 1,000 or more miles easily. That's not the, 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 you know, the best of it. It was actually heard in Alaska, and it sent out a tsunami that had heights. I don't know what the heights were by the uh, Tonga area. They were probably pretty high, maybe over 10 or 11 feet of water. But we know that in California and Alaska, there were actual residual t- you know, tsunamis witnessed. And I think there was a couple of boats that were capsized in one of the bays in California. And sadly, a couple of people perished and drowned in vehicles when the tsunami of about six feet crashed into Chile along the, along the coast. But this is interesting, Frank, because what's happened with this, astronomers up on one of the big observatories in, in Hawaii, Mauna Kea, they actually observed what they call gravity waves, these clouds and ripples. This is such an explosion that it literally kind of went around the world. But what's unusual is that earthquakes are usually 
the thing that brings about tsunamis and not volcanoes. But I got a better one about this uh, in, entire event. Let's go back to August 27th of 1883. Why? Because that's the story of the Krakatoa explosion. I wasn't there. You weren't there. The listeners weren't there. But allegedly, a 100-foot tsunami wave came out of Krakatoa, and it put up billions of tons of ash, sulfuric uh, dust, and all kinds of things, rain, acid rain. It actually lowered the temperatures on the earth for a number of years. They had red sunsets for quite a while. But here's something interesting. It's been reported from Krakatoa that sailors on a ship 40 miles away had their eardrums blown out by an incredible blast in the decibel scale. Wow. Closer, they registered this. I don't know how they did it in those days, but this is what my research tells me, that there were decibels over 300 decibels. Now, a jet engine is probably up in the, what, 140s, 150s, maybe even higher. A 300-decibel blast. But what it reminded me of, and this is the most, like, you know, kind of a, you link the thing together. When I saw that explosion, didn't it look, Frank, like an asteroidal impact into the ocean? And that in itself is kind of a bellwether of Mm. what might be if we had a small asteroid, maybe upwards of, I'm just guessing here, maybe a couple of hundred feet, and maybe a smaller one than that would probably do that kind of same damage. But God help us if we had one of those kilometer-sized ones, which did the dinosaur extinction. Well, since you mentioned the possibility of an asteroid last, I believe it was last Tuesday, there was a skyscraper-sized asteroid that passed the Earth it got a little too close for my comfort. I can't speak for anybody else. W- yeah. What's happening right now with asteroids? I've told you I remain deeply cynical that uh, if there was an asteroid that was hurtling towards the Earth, that we would ever get told the truth by the authorities that are in a position to detect it and, and tell us about it. But what are we seeing right now in terms of asteroid activity in our area? Well, I would go along what you just said and second the nomination that I think would probably be told, well, maybe not at all, as you were saying. But here's something interesting. The asteroid that passed us a few days, a week ago or so, was over 3,000 feet diameter. Now, that's large for an asteroid that comes near the Earth. They're called mm. near-Earth asteroids. Well, that one passed us by a little over a million and a half miles. That's about where the James Webb Telescope is. And let's hope it doesn't get clipped by something out there that far away. But, Frank, asteroids, these little pesky rocks that are smaller, they're so interesting. And I wanted to report this to you and the, and the audience, what I call this amazing thing. Let's say you're in a spacecraft and you're flying out there into space. Astronomers have said that these asteroids have spin rates. In other words, even these little ones, up to 30 feet, maybe even larger, even smaller, they spin like a top. Well, up till now, the fastest spinning asteroid was one called 2022 AB, letter AB. Its spin rate, Frank, was three minutes. So if you sat there looking out the window of your spacecraft, eh, you could sit there and you stopwatch and you see the thing slowly turn. And that was the record. But just recently, astronomers said that an asteroid known as 2017 QG18, I don't make this stuff up, 32 feet in diameter now has the record. And Frank, drum roll, please. Here's (laughs) their record of speed. How about 24 seconds? Wow. Can't you imagine the little thing spinning? So why do these things spin? I mean, there's no real reason that we could say there's not a motor in there, obviously. You know, we're not that simplified. You know, that's, it takes a little bit more. So really nobody understands why these things have a spin rate and something that small, well, 32 feet, I wouldn't want that hitting my house, <laughs> nor would you. <laughs> Excuse me. So 24 seconds is one heck of a rotation rate. 
That's pretty quick. That's for sure. 800-848-WABC. We're going to take your questions for Steve Cates throughout the next uh, 25 minutes or so, uh, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Let me begin with uh, Ken in Madison, Wisconsin. Hello there, Ken. How are you tonight? Great. Good morning, Ken. I'm fine. How are you? I have a question about the late astronaut Sally Ride. I met her once, but I've heard a story that she was the only working astronaut that agreed with the engineer who was campaigning not to launch the Challenger. Is that correct? Frank, I really don't know that, and when I'm always honest with this audience, I don't know that. But I would imagine, you know, having talked to people like Lynn Scheer, who was of ABC News, who I believe had a very interesting book and, and wrote so much about Sally Ride, I would imagine that somehow that story makes sense to me because she was a very brilliant woman, and, and not just the fact that she was our first you know, female in space as an astronaut, but I think there was a lot of warnings uh, mm. to go down and up the food chain that talked about not doing that on that day. And I think many of the astronauts, uh, their decision was not respected because obviously the launch took place. So it's very sad. It's more than likely that I do believe that she did that, but I don't know for absolute certain. Richard is in Rockland County. Hello there, Richard. Hi, Frank. Um, Morning, Richard. Uh, a few, yes. A few days ago, uh, maybe a week ago, an asteroid uh, passed by Venus. Uh, am I correct in that assumption? No, it's an actual it's a comet. A comet we were talking about, Richard, okay. was Comet, comet Leonard. And it yes, passed yes, the planet Venus back on December the 18th. And it passed it within, and I, and I hope I'm accurate on this. I have to research it even more. But we talked about it, Frank. It passed it, I think, by a little over a million or two million miles, which is a landmark passing of a comet toward any of the major planets. The only one, Richard, that was actually closer, and people can look this up. In the 1700s, there was a comet called Comet Lexel, L-E-X-E-L or L-E-X-E-L-L. I'm not sure. But that comet passed within a million or so miles of the Earth. So that was one of the all-time records for the Earth. But, Richard, it was more likely Comet Leonard that you're referring to. 800, uh, Richard actually uh, hung up there, but 800-848-WABC. Chris is on Staten Island. Hello there, Chris. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, for years, I, I would look at the numbers of the launch vehicles, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the rockets, Saturn yes. and Delta. And I, it always baffled me that the the vehicle that could put up the largest payload was the space shuttle. And given, you know, you have to get the space shuttle up there itself, let alone this huge payload, I never understood why the uh, the space shuttle could put up such large payloads. Well, the space shuttle, the space shuttle, Chris, had a large bay, obviously, which you could open up. But right. the answer that I'm going to give you that's even, I think, more goes, it goes more to the science of the whole thing. The National Reconnaissance Orbit and the NSA, the National Security Agency, launched and still do have launches of these so-called secret satellites that go up and spy satellites. But they used the rocket, which was the Titan IV, which was an incredible rocket. It looked like it had you know, one main rocket and had two big rockets on the side. But I believe they used those because you had even heavier, heavier weights than what you'd probably be able to put inside the payload of the uh, space shuttle. But let's not discount, uh, Chris that the space shuttle did also launch another type of spy satellites. And some of those missions, gentlemen, Frank and Chris, were actually so classified that if you look them mm. up in the book, you'll find out that uh, there's not a lot published about some of those STS missions. So the, the, honest, you know, the, the final answer that I'll give here is that you look at the shuttle, it had the, probably the largest volume area that you could put and deploy something, but maybe not necessarily the heaviest. 
Thank you, Chris. Uh, Steve, a lot of people have uh, dusted off their old telescopes listening to our conversations. Mm -hmm. Others, like me, have purchased binoculars so that they can Uh, stare at the uh, celestial objects in the sky that you're describing. What's out there in the sky now for the people with the naked eye, people with binoculars, people with the telescope? Anything out there either right at this very moment or in the near future that people can look forward to seeing that's pretty interesting? Well, my eye is peeled on uh, the the national weather map here, and I just see, and I hope I'm accurate because I'm not there right there with you personally, the weather in the New York area is probably clear enough, let's hope, that the moon rose at 121 this morning. So in the southeast, east-southeast, that moon, if obviously people can see it, don't do this if you're driving. But there's a last quarter moon in the sky, which is quite spectacular. Now, you just talked about binoculars. That's a great opportunity to take those binoculars and just look at the moon because it's half illuminated. And I love this because when we do our Dr. Sky programs with the telescopes and the public, we show them the moon at its best. So it's best to see the moon when it's first or last quarter or crescent because the shadow relief is there. So the moon will be in the sky. That'll be something interesting to see as we move right now in this so-called live sky. But here's two things that people can watch. On the evening of January the 28th, which I believe is Friday, the Chinese space station known as the Tiangong, which has three Tikonauts, there's one woman and two men up there, it will pass over the New York listening area in the East Coast, pretty much New York, this calculation is for 6.36 p.m. So 6.36 p.m., if your skies are clear, look some 50-ish degrees to the south-southeast, and you'll see this little object. It'll be bright enough with the naked eye if you're not, you know, in Times Square. And you'll see this little thing moving across the sky. That's the Tiangong. It's about the size of a school bus. And it's going to grow because the Chinese are going to build more to it to make it, you know, a bigger space station, maybe not as big as the ISS. And if you miss that, January 30th, which is an important day, Frank, because that's my birthday, and we have at 6.13 in the evening on January the 13th, that Tiangong gets a little bit brighter. So we were talking before with the gentleman about magnitudes and how many stars you can see. This one's plus one which means it's easy to see in a relatively dark sky with the naked eye. It'll be 76 degrees arcing over to the south-southeast. So if you see this little dot moving across the sky, just know that there's three uh, people on board, and they're trying to do some science up there. But other than that, you look into the west, the only major planet in the southwest at sunset is the planet Jupiter. And we also have to tell people, Frank, that there's some amazing volcanic sunsets that are being seen all around the world. So this is a beautiful beautiful thing. Early morning or after the sun goes down, 20 or 15, 20 minutes after, you may get to see with clear, clear skies some beautiful orange and purple skies with these rays that come up from the horizon. They're called crepuscular rays. They look like bright beams of light, you know, like you would fire up lights below the horizon. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, so your birthday is January 30th. I'm going to have yes, to sir. get my card in the mail so it gets to you in time. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully you'll use your wish as well. Uh, let me ask you about this. This is a big, There's a big article in the U.S. Sun. Uh, Drudge Report has linked to it near the top of the page that a giant Elon Musk rocket is about to crash into the moon. This is the headline. After seven years of chaos, what's the story here? We've covered SpaceX and Elon Musk's adventures as a spacefarer. What is this rocket? Uh, Why is it about to crash into the moon? And what are the potential dangers of this situation here, if any? Well, it's an an interesting story, Frank. When, When Elon Musk was in his younger days, going back that far, 
their rocket scientists were still trying to perfect everything that they have really gotten really good now at. So they launched this rocket, which had some sort of a little space probe on there. I think it was a little observatory of sorts, nothing like the James Webb. But its intended purpose was to get it out, may, maybe out somewhere like where the James Webb is, you know, out and away from the Earth, far enough away where it can do its science and nobody can bother it. There's no other satellites around. The second stage of that rocket had an issue. And what it was supposed to do was loop back to the Earth and either burn up in the atmosphere. This is the days before his soft landers. So that object had been going around the sun in this strange, or the, excuse me, the Earth in this rather strange loopy orbit. So scientists are telling us that the booster rocket is or unintentionally going to hit the moon probably sometime around March. Now, that's probably one of the first unintentional objects that slammed into the moon. A lot of people may not realize that we, with the Apollo program, actually slammed in one of the stages or one of the smaller stages of the Saturn rockets into the moon to test what they called the ALSEP experiment and some of the seismometers on the surface of the moon. But I remember back in 2009, here's a great one. There was a rocket, and we interviewed the gentleman who ran the project. It was called the L-Cross mission. And what is that? They sent the booster rocket intentionally to slam it into the moon in the far southern part of the moon that is thought to have ice. And remember I mentioned on a show before that sure. the coldest place of the solar system is not out by Neptune. It's not out by where the James Webb is. It's on the, sur the lunar surface at the South Pole. So simply they were going to slam this rocket booster into the moon and try to kick up whatever dust or frost was there. So we spent the entire night with a TV station out here getting ready for countdown of impact, and we were looking at the area. But guess what? Even in our puny telescope, we couldn't see the impact, but a spacecraft did see it, and it did indeed kick up some ice. So Elon Musk booster rocket is going to slam into the moon. But hopefully we're not going to have too many things junk up the moon, right, Frank? <laughs> hopefully not. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. 800-848-WABC. Those of you that are on hold, we're going to make an effort to get to you. There are three open lines if you want to get in to talk to Dr. Sky. 800-848-9222. If you're looking up at the stars, you've got company. Frank Morano and Steve Cates for the rest of the hour. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He's an expert on all things space. And if you want to check out his blog, you can go to KTAR.com. A world of interesting information on there. You have questions, we're going to answer them. Or Steve, more appropriately, is going to answer them. 800-848-9222. Steve, this might be a little unfair for me to throw at you. But on Twitter... There are now multiple reports of an extremely loud explosion in, that's been heard in New Orleans over the last hour and a half or so. Fire crews have been dispatched to investigate. Nothing is terribly evident yet, but everyone is saying it was very loud. It was apparently heard across most of the city. It's been tweeted about by people like uh, Van Applegate, who's uh, an Emmy-winning Emmy photojournalist. And there's a lot of speculation that this could have been a meteor somewhere off the coast. Um, what is the likelihood, do you think, that this actually could be 
a meteor. Other people, are, by the way, are speculating it could be aliens. But uh, let's start with the meteor hypothesis first. Well, it makes sense. I mean, if no one sees fires around the you know area or something burning at sea, it's more than likely that that could indeed be one of the shock waves from an incoming meteor. And again, we go back to the most livid example back in 2013 was Chelyabinsk, the one that happened in Russia. That was 66 feet across, and all the people that went to hospitals, it was not because the asteroid body actually smashed into the buildings. It was the shock wave. So that explosion, and it's very early, we're not sure, but until we are, one of the probabilities could indeed be a small or medium-sized asteroid-type body like a meteor exploding over the Gulf. All right, 800-848-9222. Don is in Long Beach. Hello there, Don. Hi, uh, Dr. Sky. Question, um, with all the exploration you're doing on Mars, we've never attempted to land on either of the two moons, Deimos and Phobos. Just curious why not. Well, it's interesting. I I don't really have a good answer as to why not. I mean, they're fascinating little moons. And just a little bit of a back history on that, Don, they were discovered actually where the vice president lives at the Naval Observatory. Back in 1877, a gentleman named Asaph Hall was sitting there in a murky night in the summer, I believe, of 1877, in the fog and the humidity. And he got to see Mars when it came really close to the Earth. And these two objects, named for the the goddess chariot horses, panic and fear, Deimos and Phobos, I would guess the answer is that they're so small and they just orbit so fast. But it's very unusual. Think about this, folks. This particular little object, the Deimos, these objects, Deimos and Phobos, this is really bizarre, Don. I don't know if you've ever heard this. But in, John, uh, in Gulliver's Travels, I think it was Jonathan Swift that wrote it. I'm not a scholar in the English uh, literature. But it's reported that the Lilliputians that were supposed to occupy the, the world, they made a discovery in their telescope long before they were actually ever seen by Asaph Hall. And he described in the book, in the fictional book, the size and rotation times of those two objects. Hmm. Hopefully one day we'll land on both of those objects to find out. But they're so strange because one day on those two satellites, Phobos more likely, will cascade and orbit and crash into the planet itself. Because in my opinion, they're two weird objects. And some people have even speculated that they were placed there by <clears throat> other intelligence. Hmm. Very interesting. You know, speaking of that, one one listener emailed me a uh, a question and I said that if time permitted, I would uh, try and ask uh, I would ask you about it. But uh, do you give any credence to the claims of people who say that they might have been abducted by space uh, aliens or have come into contact with extraterrestrials or that maybe even the extraterrestrials were responsible for building the Egyptian pyramids or Inca fortresses? Yes, Frank, I, I got to go to this one, and, and this is very interesting. The abduction situations, I have a little bit more, you know, believability in. And, and again, I say this from ignorance in a way, not arrogance. I was friends with a woman named Betty Hill. Oh, she, yeah, we, we've covered her case quite a bit on this show. I knew her. I went to her home when she was alive, God rest her soul, many, many times, interviewed her on shows that I did in college. And I was kind of a disbeliever until I went there and really read the books and read the stories about under deep hypnosis. They both tell the same story. Her husband passed away, obviously, soon after. But the point is, the most prolific one is a gentleman that I know very well is Travis Walton. Mm. And his story, I mean, is so amazing. The movie Fire in the Sky with D.B. Sweeney, just literally, folks, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's more of an adult movie at the very end because not X-rated, but it's adult because... Frank, what they show, without spoiling the movie for people, 
Travis Walton's description of the aliens, of what they do to him, and they show that in the movie as the end of that movie. That was one of the spookiest things. But I believe that Travis had something happen to him. So I'm on board with that possibility because I, I really don't know. But I always want to learn to try to seek out knowledge and be an open mind. Let me ask you this. As somebody that spends a lot of time looking at the stars, studying the stars, staring at constellations, my brother-in-law is the world's biggest astrology nut. I'm curious, do you lend any credence to the world of astrology? And can we tell about anything that, maybe not that will happen in the future, but anything about ourselves or about certain characteristics of people that have certain astrological profiles? I'm not an active participant in astrology, but I got to also be fair to astrology. That was one of the things that people studied a long time ago. And some of the astrology that was done led to the discoveries in astronomy. But as far as me reading a horoscope in a newspaper, I would not necessarily go that route. I mean, in my opinion, I would rather maybe bet $100 on a sporting event before I'd probably believe that something is going to happen to me through the chain of things. But here's where I'm still an open mind, Frank. More and more people are coming to the conclusion, and I know this, you know, without knowing a lot about it, that quantum physics is still something that's so bizarre. So what we think we know, we probably don't. And some have even speculated, and that's why I'm an open mind on this, that instead of seeing three or four dimensions in this universe, there may be upwards of 22. And there's a very complicated topic called Kalabayao manifolds. Sounds like something in a car engine, like a manifold, but it's not. It's the theoretical idea that there's probably more spatial dimensions than our minds can even comprehend. And wouldn't this be a beautiful thing for anyone? We've all suffered loss of loved ones. That maybe those loved ones have transgressed to a dimensional plane that's actually closer than we think. And at least that's what keeps me happy on a day when I respect the loss of my mother and father, Mm. that I don't want to think that they're, you know, some far, far, far away place. Maybe it's all in the quantum soup. So anything's open, and I think it's amazing to just, as we listen and learn more about what's going on in quantum mechanics, even Einstein, who was the great mind of his time, and even Stephen Hawking, Einstein still said that there's things in space like dark energy and dark matter. He referred to dark matter, which he didn't know what was dark matter, as some spooky action at a distance. So what I'm saying in conclusion is there's so much more to learn, and the quantum world is so fascinating. That is for sure. Let me squeeze in at least one more call here before we run out of time. Tony is in Westwood. Hello, Tony. Hey, guys. Great show. Uh, question, two questions. Does the spin rate of an asteroid, could it be fast enough to create a gravitational field on the asteroid? And number two, as the asteroid is traveling through space, could be for millions of years, is there anything that affects the speed, like solar wind, gravitational fields, and have we noticed a reduction in speed in any of those asteroids? Thanks. Well, it's a very interesting series of questions. Yes, that spin rate, it generates its own little gravity. But if you were on an asteroid, it'd be so weak that if you and I and Frank decided in our spacesuits to jump off one of these little things, we'd probably go back out into space and not return. But there's something that happens with asteroids, and particularly asteroids indeed. The problematic thing is when these things are headed toward the Earth, there's a factor that science and math really can't guarantee, and it's a simple thing called the Yarkovsky effect. I said simple thing. What's that? The independent heating on an amorphous subject, like a rough, it's not a perfectly round sphere. It's just a rough thing, like a chunk of whatever, like a piece of coal. The interdifferential heating that's coming onto areas of that asteroid from the sun 
cause the asteroid to do its own thing by the heating. So it's also something we have to consider when we're trying to understand whether an asteroid would come to the Earth at the exact date and time. As we close up, Frank, just remember the asteroid Apophis, which is supposed to pass the Earth in 2029. It's supposed to pass us, and at that time, maybe we'll do a live show, God bless us all, where you can actually see that asteroid trekking across the sky, mm. and it should be bright enough without getting people to tell them the wrong thing, bright enough in a dark location that you'd actually see it moving across the sky in real time. But if it comes back again, which it will in 2037, if it goes through this gravity keyhole in 2029, it could offset the asteroid, and maybe some of that Yarkovsky effect heating could change it. So Einstein said it, and I think he said it best. There's a lot of you know stories about calculating distances and spin rates, but Einstein said this way, God doesn't play dice with the universe. St- well, be some rule. Is, uh, as a dice player myself and as somebody that's quite a big fan of the universe, I can appreciate that. Steve, as usual, the hour has just flown by. I cannot wait until our next interaction, either on the air or off. I wish we could hear you every day on this radio station. It is a great, great pleasure to talk with you. And I hope everybody checks out uh, your blog at KTAR.com. Well, the pleasure's all mine. The best to you, your wife, and little baby Carmine. So God bless. Thank you very much. Hey, uh, Steve mentioned betting on sports. We're going to talk about what happened in the world of sports in just a minute. Hall of Fame. Some interesting news out of the Hall of Fame voting for baseball fans. We'll get into it next. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, it's no secret that I'm a big baseball fan. Always have been, always will be, in spite of my frequent disappointments with respect to Major League Baseball. I love the game of baseball, which is one of the reasons that I am just so excited about this new independent league team that's coming to New York and the fact that it's going to be managed by one of my favorite players of all time, Edgardo Alfonso, is just, uh, pardon the pun, it's a home run. I'm very much looking forward to that. Meantime, some news on the Baseball Hall of Fame front yesterday. There was only one player elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. That was Boston Red Sox hero David Ortiz. Now, David Ortiz has had a remarkable career an absolutely remarkable career and he was an integral part of the Red Sox you know early 2000s incredible championship team but my question for you is less about David Ortiz who I don't think anybody disputes deserves to be in the Hall of Fame and more about the players that were excluded, namely two, but we can make it a ex- uh, discussion about three if you want. Seven-time National League MVP Barry Bonds, 
the man who has hit more home runs than any player in history, the man who holds the single-season record for most home runs in a single season, was denied entry into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Roger Clemens, who has won, let's see, five times, five Cy Young Awards? No, excuse me, seven times Cy Young Award winner. Roger Clemens also rejected for the 10th and final year with only 65% of the vote. You need 75% of the vote from the baseball writers to get in. Now, it's very clear, and if you look at the other players that were rejected, you have Sammy Sosa, who was also another player from that steroid era who apparently tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs back in 2003. He was denied entry into his final year. Uh, Putting aside the Sammy Sosa issue, I would love to know your take on Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds being excluded from the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. And I'd also love to know if you think it's appropriate that it's the baseball writers that get to do this voting. Maybe the fans should vote. Maybe... Um, maybe somebody else should vote. You think it's appropriate that it's the baseball writers that get to pick this? Now, whether it's appropriate or not, that's the way it is. That's the way it's been for, um, you know, decades, 80 years or something. However, with respect to Clemens and Bonds, I don't think it's right what they did. I, look, in, in my opinion, it's pretty clear to me that both of them use steroids. Both of them. And, look, I, as a Met fan who saw Roger Clemens act like a lunatic by throwing that broken bat at Mike Piazza, which clearly to me was an example of some sort of roid rage. I'm not the biggest Roger Clemens fans. And remember, you know, seeing what Roger Clemens did to the New York Mets in the 1986 World Series, I'm not the biggest Roger Clemens fan. However, in terms of baseball, Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, yes, they cheated. In my opinion, they cheated. They used performance-enhancing drugs, and they shouldn't have. However, I believe both of these men belong in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and I'll tell you why. Unlike a player like, say, Edgar Martinez, unlike a player like maybe Sammy Sosa, unlike a player like Brady Anderson, these two players, Clemens and Bonds, both of them, had Hall of Fame careers before they started using steroids. Now, how do we know when they started using steroids? Of course we don't. But, look, if you look at the photos from Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds from the, um, I'd say from 1984 through 1993, they look like these skinny little scrawny guys that, you know, eh, maybe they could play baseball, maybe they're athletes, maybe they're bus drivers. They look like regular guys. After, I'd say, 1996, 1997, these two people, Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, they look like bodybuilders. They, they look, they, they're about three times the size of what they were when they were young and supposedly in their prime. And not only do they look like the Incredible Hulk, both of them, they, their head looks bigger. I don't know what, what 
exercise regimen you could go on that makes your head blow up like a balloon. But somehow both of these guys saw their heads dramatically expand. It's, I mean, you could tell. But prior to 1990, let's say, let's call it 1995. Prior to 1995, both Bonds and Clemens, in the case of Bonds, he won three times, three Cy Young Awards, three times. In the case of uh, Clemens, won, uh, no, in the case of Bonds, won three MVP awards. In the case of Clemens, won multiple Cy Young Awards. For those of you that don't follow baseball, that's the pitcher that's awarded for, that's the award that's given to the best pitcher in each of the leagues. And I think they had a Hall of Fame career before they even started cheating. In my opinion, they both deserve to be in. I'm all for making them pay some sort of a penalty. Um, Look, their reputations have already been irreparably tarnished. And uh, deservedly so. They should be uh, uh, something of a pariah for their use of performance-enhancing drugs. But if the Baseball Hall of Fame is seriously going to be about putting in the best baseball players, these guys were the best baseball players long before they started using performance-enhancing drugs. In my opinion, they both belong in. And look, 60-something percent of the people voting on this Agreed with me. What say you? 800-848-WABC. Now, I want you to weigh in on that. However, I also have to comment on the situation involving Kurt Schilling. Now, Kurt Schilling is an interesting guy. He played with the Boston Red Sox when they were in the World Series, played with the Philadelphia Phillies when they were in the World Series. He is, he's someone who had, let's see, I'm pulling up his statistics in front of me, one, two, three, three seasons where he had more than 20 wins, two seasons where he led the league in wins. The guy has 216 wins in the course of his lifetime, had a 346 ERA in spite of the fact that he pitched in the steroids era. What was incredible in the playoffs for both Philadelphia and Boston, the guy was an incredible, and Arizona, by the way, Philadelphia, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and Boston. He was incredible. He was the MVP in the NLCS in 1993. He was the MVP in the World Series in 2001. Remember, that World Series where they played the Yankees, the Diamondbacks. That was the only year I ever rooted for the Yankees in the World Series because I thought it would be a nice thing for New York after September 11th to have a World Championship parade downtown right after the terrorist attacks. Ultimately, of course, the one year I'd root for the Yankees, that's the one year they don't win. But you remember how dominant Kurt Schilling was in that, you know, in that, in that uh, World Series. The guy's been in two American League Division Series, two National League Division Series, two ALCS, two NLCS, four World Series. The guy was a phenomenal pitcher throughout the course of his 20-year career. Now, as a starting pitcher in baseball, you don't get a 20-year career anymore. Show me the last great pitcher in the last five, ten years that's had a 20-year career putting up the kind of numbers that Kurt Schilling has had. Now, sometimes the rub against a a, a pitcher is, okay, he was a good pitcher, he has good numbers, but he never played on any winning teams. He never helped deliver his team a championship. Well, Kurt Schilling did. 
So why is Kurt Schilling not in the Hall of Fame? Look, I'm not one of these guys that likes to point the finger and say liberal bias, liberal bias, liberal bias, even when there is liberal bias in the press or somewhere else. I, I don't like to say it because it's it's annoying. It's It's annoying for me to constantly hear that. But in my opinion, Kurt Schilling is a well-known conservative. He's also somebody that likes to mix it up with the mainstream press. Kurt Schilling, who was never, ever tied to steroid use throughout the course of his career. Kurt Schilling, who had to deal with pitching to guys like Brady Anderson, Barry Bonds, Edgar Martinez, Alex Rodriguez, also, by the way, not voted into the Hall of Fame, I suspect, because of his use of performance-enhancing drugs. Um, Mark McGuire. Uh, Kurt Schilling, who had to pitch to these monsters, still managed to dominate them. He pitched in the steroid era and didn't take steroids. The guy essentially unilaterally disarmed. You don't think that he had the opportunity to take all these performance-enhancing drugs that all these other gorillas were taking? And I mean gorillas in the muscular sense, not any racial sense, before you start sending your letters to the um, to whatever to FAIR or whatever your media watchdog group is of choice. Kurt Schilling is a conservative. In 2016, he tweeted an image of a shirt that condemned the lynching of journalists, a move that clearly made him less popular among the reporters who vote on these Hall of Fame inductions. Kurt Schilling has now been denied eligibility to the Hall of Fame in the final year that he's eligible. To me, this is a travesty. And I have never been for changing the way that the Hall of Fame selects who's inducted into the Hall of Fame. Because if you look at who gets into the Hall of Fame, by and large, most of the time they get it right. The year that Mariano Rivera got in unanimously, right call, absolutely. Uh, If you look at the people that get in, they all deserve it. They all deserve it. There's a couple of people in the Hall of Fame that maybe you could say don't deserve it. Does Rabbit Moranville deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Okay, maybe not. But I don't like to question how the Hall of Fame does things because, you know, it's their joke. It's their thing. I don't like how people question how I do things on the radio. I'm not going to question how the Hall of Fame does things. Kurt Schilling, multiple 20-game winning seasons, multiple seasons in which he has led the league in wins, multiple Cy Youngs, multiple playoff MVPs. To me, the only reason that he's being kept out is because he is – an outspoken conservative. And look, I say this as someone that does not identify as a conservative. I know, uh, you know, sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't matter what you identify as. I don't consider myself a conservative. In spite of the fact that I voted for Trump twice, I view myself as pretty liberal. So I'm not here uh, carrying the flag of conservatism. But to me, what possible other justification can there be for Kurt Schilling not to be in the Hall of Fame? So I think all three of these people should be in. Clemens should be in. Bonds should be in, although they deserve absolutely a slap on the wrist for their use of performance-enhancing drugs. Kurt Schilling should clearly be in. To me, the only reason that he's not is because he has been – he's tweeted some things that have been uh, a little weird on Twitter and because he's an outspoken conservative. But if we're going to keep Kurt Schilling out, 
I don't like to play the whataboutism by saying, oh, what about this person? What about that person? Let's look at some of the characters that are in the Hall of Fame. You want to look at Ty Cobb? Uh, you, you, you see the movie Cobb with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and our, our former guest on the show, Robert Wall. Uh, Ty Cobb was a vicious racist. Ty Cobb was not a good sport, sportsman. Ty Cobb had no problem um, spiking people when he was breaking up double plays. And, by the way, let's remember Joe Jackson, who's you know banned from baseball forever after the eight-men-out scandal of the 1919 World Series. Ty Cobb regularly threw games. Ty Cobb, uh, by some accounts, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Ty Cobb threw around the N-word the way I order a cup of coffee. He's in the Hall of Fame, but Kurt Schilling tweets some things that upset the the ultra-woke among us, and he's kept out of the Hall of Fame. I think the time has come to change how we pick who goes in the Hall of Fame. That's my view. What do you think? Does Clemens belong in? Does Bonds belong in? Does Kurt Schilling belong in? And if you want to come in on A-Rod as well, you can. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with uh, Kiernan in East Rutherford. It is Kiernan, not Kieran. It is Kiernan, Frankie Baby, long time, first time. Ah, welcome aboard. Welcome aboard, uh, Kiernan. We'll give you your uh, All right. First... I'd like to thank Mr. Katz for the TV for having such great talent on the station. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Hopefully I'm included in that. Yes, you are. You are, without question. Um, I remember there was a time that you're innocent until proven guilty, and many people have oh, been accused that, what, of what, major league error. What, what, are you, from the eight, what, what are you, from the 18th what? century? A, innocent until proven guilty? Come on. Yeah, no, it's Roger, the other way around. Clemens, remember, Roger Clemens is the only one to take his accuser to a court of law. His name was Greg Anderson. He was a disgraced ex-New York City cop. He claimed he had DNA on injectable. When he got to court, there was no Roger Clemens DNA. He's the only one that ever sat in front of Congress. Remember, Rafael Pamel pointed his finger. He'd never taken, never taken, and like short time later, he tested positive for PEDs. Roger Clemens gains 20 pounds over a 20-year career, which is normal for a big guy, a professional athlete. Barry Bonds, on the other hand, after age 30, gained like 60 pounds. That is really the physical evidence you only need. There's no way Roger Clemens has ever, ever uh, taken a PED. I do know it's hearsay. His friend Andy Pettit did say, oh, uh, he told me it was for him. Roger Clemens' wife was on Sports Illustrated cover. She looked awesome. There was PEDs delivered to the house. She claimed it was for her. Everyone admitted it was for her. Andy must have misspoke, according to Roger. Roger never threw Andy under the bus. He said he's a Christian. He doesn't lie. But it doesn't make sense. The one accuser that claimed they had evidence was not able to produce that evidence in the court. Well, Roger look, Clemens I, I followed, clearly be in. I followed, and I commented on the time, because I was on the radio with Curtis at the time, the Roger Clemens criminal trial very closely, and uh, I thought it was the right decision by the jury to find him not guilty, and I thought it was a total waste of taxpayer money to even bring that prosecution. But putting that aside, let's say Roger Clemens, and I I appreciate the defense that you've given him here, but let's say Roger Clemens did take PED. Let's say he did. Do you think that should keep him out of the Hall of Fame if, as I said, I believe he had a Hall of Fame career even prior to any allegations of, of steroid use? Oh, without question. He's a seven-time uh, Cy Young winner. I mean, what he did from his early years, in the early 80s, Rocket Man, 
Uh, even Bonds, I was never a Bonds fan. Of course, I was watching it. Everyone saw him hit the home runs in the 90s. Um, it, it is a dis- disrespect to those that have paved the way. Uh, personally, I think we have the Cy Young Award. We should have the Satchel Page Award because this is a guy that pitched you know, three games a day in the league release in 30 years. They made the pros. There's a lot of you know, you know, unproven injustices, but we got to go with what we know. Roger was found not guilty. Well, no, no, but, and, but, but uh, let's say, take my hypothetical into account, right? Because clearly sure. uh, the, the, the baseball writers that vote on the Hall of Fame, they're not a jury. They're not evaluating innocence or, or evidence here. They're going with their gut. They clearly believe that Clemens and Bonds both took these performance-enhancing drugs. My view is, let's say they did, I think they should still be in the Hall of Fame because of the career that they led prior to that. Do you agree with me? Um, me as a performance specialist, uh, if you cheat, you cheat. And if you didn't cheat, you didn't cheat. But I mean, the, the performance enhancing drugs are not going to make you hit a ball. Right. Well, that's true. Skill. That's exactly you right. That's exactly you right. You don't see, oh, I'm sorry. I, uh, disconnected you there, Kiernan. You don't see Lou Ferrigno collecting many MVP or Cy Young awards, do you? We'll continue with your calls in just a minute. I know a lot of you want to comment on this. One open line if you want to jump on board. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I do want to tell you uh, there is no performance-enhancing drugs present in Life Change Tea. It's all natural. There's not even any GMOs in there. There's not even any caffeine in there. So you might say, okay, there's no performance-enhancing drugs, no GMOs. No uh, steroids, no caffeine. What good does it do? Here's what it does do. It cleanses you from the inside out. It will give you, it's a gentle daily cleanse. You drink two eight-ounce glasses of this stuff every day. You will feel like a new man or woman or a new person. It is a phenomenal product that will cleanse your digestive system from the inside out. It'll give you a ton of energy without caffeine. And if you haven't tried it yet, go to the website, getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com and use the promo code FRANK for free shipping. Getthetea.com, promo code FRANK for free shipping. There's a ton of other supplements on there as well. And you can uh, order anything you like on there. I ordered melatonin recently, uh, vitamin C, pine bark extract, bee pollen, colostrum, any sort of supplement that you might buy in a health food store or wherever. Buy it at GetTheTea.com because if you use the promo code FRANK when you buy it, you too will get to enjoy free shipping. GetTheTea.com, promo code FRANK. It's the tea that makes you go. WABC. Midnight. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. That's Eric Clapton. Uh, by the way, I know a lot of you have been following Eric Clapton's very outspoken anti-vaccine 
position. Well, uh, just this week, he went on YouTube to discuss how his life has changed since reluctantly taking AstraZeneca's therapy in 2021. He has since become outspoken about his anti-vaccination stance. But here's what was interesting. He claimed that he'd been duped into getting the COVID jab by subliminal messaging in pharmaceutical advertising and actually urged others not to fall for it. So he's saying that the pharmaceutical industry is using subliminal messaging to get you to get vaccinated. Huh. Eric Clapton for you. Hey, right now, uh, by the way, coming up at 4.30, I'm very excited to talk with George Beebe. Uh, George Beebe's been a guest on this show before, and he is one of the sanest and most sober minds when it comes to the issue of Russia and foreign affairs in general. Now, he's not hysterical. He's not a Russian plant. He's got a long history of being a diplomat, working within the government. And he is somebody who I really uh, think highly of on the Russia issue. But for now, we're talking about the decision by the baseball writers yesterday to induct David Ortiz into the Hall of Fame and to keep out Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, Kurt Schilling. Clearly, Clemens and Bonds and and A-Rod are being excluded because of steroids, clearly. In my opinion, Kurt Schilling's being excluded because of a combination of the fact that he's a conservative and and the fact that he doesn't get along with journalists, namely the baseball writers. So I want to know your view on putting all these people in the Hall of Fame Should they be in? Should they not be in? And two, and perhaps more important in the long term, do we need to reform how we determine who goes into the Hall of Fame? Should it be fan voting? Should it be player voting? Should it be some other method? I don't have the answer. And I've never really been one of the guys to raise a question about how these people end up in the Hall of Fame. But the fact that Kurt Schilling is not in there, It's just, it's so stupid, and it makes no sense. It almost makes a mockery of the Hall of Fame. It's like if we were to have a WABC Hall of Fame and not put Bob Grant and Rush Limbaugh in there. People would just say, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's not a real Hall of Fame. It has no credibility. 800-848-WABC. George is in Brooklyn. Hello, George. Hello. I really think Kurt Schilling belongs in the Hall of Fame. He was the best. He was one of the best pitchers in Red Sox history, and I I think he really belongs there. I mean, he's being penalized for his political views, honestly. I mean, A-Rod, I mean, people call him A-Roid and A-Fraud. I mean, he he does not belong. I mean, he was suspended for an entire year. Uh, Roger Clemens, his sportsmanship was horrific. He threw that broken bat at Mike Piazza, and and uh, Sammy Sosa, another one who was roided up, and Barry Bonds. I mean, uh, Barry Bonds. They used to have the Barry Bonds Navy out out in the water outside the stadium catching his uh, home runs. Well, uh, thank you, George. Uh, look, uh, just to correct what you said, you're not going to get me to defend Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens was, uh, I mean, when he threw that bat at Mike Piazza, that was just insane. Absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. After throwing a pitch, in my view, uh, at him. But we'll put that aside. 
Kurt Schilling was a great pitcher. You can make a case that he was one of the best pitchers in Philly's history. You can make a case that he was one of the best pitchers in Diamondbacks' history. He was not one of the best pitchers in Red Sox history for his performance with the Red Sox. He never even had a winning season with the Red Sox. He did pitch well in the playoffs, including, uh, remember that when he had that uh, stigmata on his ankle or whatever it was, um, he was integral in terms of helping deliver that 2004 championship, but he's not one of the best pitchers in Red Sox history. Roger Clemens is. Uh, Pedro Martinez, I think, is. A lot of other pitchers, uh, you can make that case. He was not one of the best pitchers in Red Sox history. Great pitcher, and if you look at the totality of his 20-year career, based on the numbers, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. I think, uh, keeping in mind what you said about Clemens and Bonds, I think they do too. Because while I believe, in spite of what uh, Kiernan said, I believe they both did take steroids. I think they had a Hall of Fame career before that. Now, should the fact that they cheated cause them to be so disgraced that they don't make it into the Hall of Fame? Maybe. Maybe. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Two two Al is in Rockland County. Hello, Al. Hello. I just wanted to say that I used to uh, work alongside of this Dr. Walter Riker, who was the chairman of the pharmacology department at Cornell, Cornell Med, and he used to be the advisor, the drug advisor to the NFL. And he and I used to have long conversations about that because I was a big sports fanatic, particularly for the NFL. And his argument was always along the lines that these guys are celebrities and they're getting paid a tremendous amount of money and so forth. And we have to look at the societal role they play in terms of hero worship and that a lot of kids are seriously damaged because when they see these guys being able to move up by simply using steroids, well, Kids on a high school baseball team may decide to use the steroids because they see their heroes are allowed to do it. And it's considered to be okay. And you're actually praised. You become a member of the Hall of Fame and everything as a result of just giving, doing whatever it takes, so to speak. But the difference is those guys are wealthy. And they can afford the doctors for all the medical costs for the damage that occurs years afterwards, after you've been using those steroids. And if you wanted to have people voting on this, how about having the cardiologists who have to treat people with all the cardiomyofunctions uh, that occur as a result of long-term steroid use? Or the guys who have to deal with uh, guys, uh, their genitals shrink down, and they now become impotent impotent they can't have kids or how about those guys being involved in the voting well i i I think that's a little silly to be honest al right it's not a medical hall of fame it's not a cardiology hall of fame uh i mean it's about baseball now that being said everything i agree with you i uh completely agree that these players benefiting with fame big salaries because of their use of steroids, is a terrible message to young people. couple of things. I am all for steroid testing for all high school athletes, 100%. Always have been, have been for about 15 years. You can go back and look at letters to the editor I wrote when that was proposed here in New York State. All for it. And 
keeping in mind what you said about these athletes who owe their career solely to steroids, I'm all for keeping them out of the Hall of Fame. I'm all for punishing Clemens. I'm all for punishing Bonds. I'm all for making both of them a pariah. You you want to say they should pay a fine? I'm all for it. Again, the difference with Bonds and Clemens, they had a Hall of Fame career prior to using steroids. Now, and there's a lot of people, and I'm not justifying this at all, there's a lot of people in other fields that have used steroids. Right. Uh, I've spoken with Jesse Ventura on this show. Jesse Ventura has talked about his use of steroids in pro wrestling. The use of steroids was rampant, especially in the 1980s. And one of the things you have to keep in mind is that a lot of the athletes didn't know as much about the damage that steroids could do to your body. Although, I mean, the the steroids that people like Jesse Ventura and Hulk Hogan and uh, the wrestlers were taking in the 80s anabolic steroids was different than the sort of performance-enhancing drugs that people like Mark McGuire and uh, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens were taking, allegedly. But the point's still the same. You're you're a poor example for America's youth, 100%. Same thing with Lance Armstrong, to some extent. He wasn't doing the uh, steroids, but he was doing the blood doping and cheating in, in other ways. So 800-848-WABC. But look, I get what, I get what the caller was saying. And, uh, you know, if, if, that, if you think that's enough to keep people out of the Hall of Fame, maybe you should. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Tom is in Red Bank. Hello, Tom. Hey, Frank. Great show. I, I take it you're a little bit passionate about uh, baseball. I, I like um, baseball a great deal. Absolutely. <laughs> me too. I was a 30-year uh, season ticket holder with the Yankees uh, in years back, and I – I uh, I remember getting my heart broken when the uh, Braves beat the Yankees in the 50s. I was a little boy, uh, but I was old enough, and my dad was a National Leaguer. He was a Giants fan, but uh, he enjoyed seeing the Yankees get beat. And then the following year when uh, the Yankees beat uh, the Braves, um, <clears throat> I uh, got a little revenge. I guess I was, I was about <laughs> uh, eight or nine years old. But my father was a National Leaguer. Uh, Willie May, nobody could touch Willie Mays in my dad's in my dad's eyes. And uh, you know his, you know I would say this guy's a good guy, this guy's a good player, and he would say yeah, but he's not Willie, and he's good enough to play in the National League. But let let me go a little further. I really waffled on this issue. So did I, um, by the way. So did I. I I, I wash. You know, I really waffled on it, but. I've I've watched the Hall of Fame over the years become the hall of the very good players, not immortal. And uh, you know I, I you know to me Sandy Colfax, Bob Gibson. You mentioned Pedro Rodri- uh Pedro Martinez. Martinez, and you know people got to look at his record a little bit. And his best years, he matched Sandy Colfax. Mm-hmm. There's only one Sandy Colfax, but Pedro was a hell of a guy and I was in the stadium the night that Aaron Boone hit the uh the home run let's put it that way off of Wakefield mm-hmm. and uh when when uh Pedro went out I guess I was one of the guys that said who's your daddy I, I'm sure I was but when he came well to he the showed match, you he didn't the, he uh, pardon me he showed you didn't he you know uh I just wound up really admiring him when he came to the Mets same uh, let me go to the steroids thing. I really waffled on this issue, 
But there's no doubt that Barry Bonds is an immortal player. Roger Clemens is an immortal player. They do belong there. Uh, it's, that's a tough swallow for me. But with Kurt Schilling, I, I don't know if you touched on this or maybe I missed it. One of the reasons I, I think he was denied admission is he he said last year, take my name off. Take my name off. And I think the writers, some of them at least, said, okay, you want your name off? You want your name off. Outstanding ball player. Um, I, and it's hard for me to say that because Barry Bonds breaking the great Henry Aaron's record was painful to me. From the time I was a little kid, I pulled off the road to see, uh, to go into a saloon to see if Henry was going to uh, get Babe Ruth's record. And it was a great moment in, in my life. Uh, the last time I saw Roger was in a playoff game and he kind of got bombed in the, in the, in the middle of the game and not in the middle, in the beginning of the game, he was gone. Hey, Rod, that's a different story, but still a great, great player. My preference is to take the character stuff out of here. Take it out of here altogether. Show me what they did on the field. Anybody that doesn't believe that, that Barry did these things, um, and I bought three of his bats when he was hitting his 73 home runs. They had like a special on the bats. I gave two of them away. I still have one. I have a Henry Aaron autograph bat. The, the, uh, so I think it should be what you did on the field. I don't want the character stuff in well, there. Well, I, I, I hear Pete you. Rose. Right now, I, 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 you were about to mention Pete Rose, and I get it. I can understand not taking character into account if somebody was a virulent racist like Ty Cobb or somebody that uh, uh, just uh, you know mixed it up with reporters like Kurt Schilling. I can understand what you're saying. The reason I do think it's okay to take PEDs into account is that unlike character issues that take place off the field, PEDs or the use of uh, steroids, that is a form of cheating. I mean, you are getting an advantage over people that aren't taking those drugs. I think, in my opinion, the difference with Bonds and Clemens, as opposed to people like Sammy Sosa, is they had Hall of Fame careers prior to taking those drugs. Well, yeah, absolutely, and you know, Sammy Sosa with Mark the Mark McGuire thing. Now, you got to understand. Well, you know, you know, you don't know me. My hero was Roger Maris. He was my hero. No one's going to hit sixty-one home runs again with the way the game is is played now. But you know what? People dog Giancarlo Stanton, and when he had fifty-nine when he was down in Florida, uh, somebody asked him. Do you think uh, if you get to 60, who do you think has the record? And he said the guy that didn't cheat, clearly meaning Roger Maris, who, belong, in my book, belongs in the Hall of Fame, a champion all the way. Uh, but I'm highly prejudiced for that. Uh, but, I, you know, I, it really, this discussion about the Peds, um, it made me think about baseball players. That, you know that sweet swing of Barry Bonds, that short swing. Um, I, I, I got to go with his performance on the field. And and in, in that era, you made a great point. Schilling was a terrific pitcher uh, against the steroid guys. It just was something that happened. It was wrong. I I concede that. 
And I, it's like the vaccination. Either you want to get it or you don't get it. I'm not intruding on your thought process. But to see those guys play and how they were, I'm just going by their performance on the field. I don't want to hear about WARs. I don't want to hear about any of that. I want to, I want to see what the guy did on the field. And those guys did it, even A-Rod. A-Rod's problem was the way he handled the Yankees, uh, him and his attorney. No, suing everybody. Yeah, A- A-Rod had a lot of problems. That le- Tom, great call. Thank you for calling, and uh, thank you for your enthusiastic baseball fandom. I hope you call again. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Jeff is in Jersey City. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Frank. Uh, for me, uh, really amazing. Sandy Koufax are the best uh uh, well, in my lifetime, you know, sure. before my time. And the Polo Grounds up in Harlem on 155th Street, my favorite place to see a game, Frank. They should, should have preserved it. Agreed. Uh, but anyway, hey, I want to, uh, a compliment for you uh, by your uh, co worker. Um, Curtis said, You are a great fundamental baseball player, and you could teach major leaguers the thing about uh, fundamentals. And I like, I, I, when he said that, he said it with all sincerity, and I, and I like that. And I like that in you. It says something about your character. Um, but um, anyway, um, the, the, the steroids and the, and, and the other thing. Here's my feeling, Frank. I think that the players that, that, that you mentioned, Bonds, Schilling, Clemens, they should be in. And my, here's my real feeling. The PEDs, the steroids, in baseball, they should be legal. It's not football. It's not hockey. It's not a contact sport. The quality of play, they've always, uh, baseball's always complaining about everything. We're losing attendance. Uh, we're losing kids. But they allowed uh, the, the players to legally, under doctor supervision, to use, uh, uh, you know, to some level, uh, PEDs. The, the quality of play would escalate so high you'd have no 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 problem bringing uh, uh, fans into the to the seats uh, the uh, television attendance and speeding up the game which they always complain uh, complain about the game would move along at a pace but the play would be really fantastic um so that i mean that's some of my my, my thoughts and the thing about the the, the the kids what you said is right High school, no. You can't allow steroids in high school. Absolutely not. That should be tested regularly. And a coach, Frank, you you know, you've been around long enough. You could tell when a player or an individual is acting unusual. You know, so that can be detected in, at a, at a, in a high school setting. So that could be eliminated from high school. And for kids, parents are the best example and the teachers for the kids. Not baseball players, not athletes. Athletes are the worst example for kids. You see what athletes are doing nowadays? Do you want your kids to emulate something, what, what athletes are doing nowadays? I mean, you know what? You, you have a beautiful son, Frank, and um, God has blessed you with something, and you're going to raise him uh, to be a, you know, a, a, a fabulous citizen. And um, that's your pride, and that's what you're going to do, and that's what all parents should do. So, you know, Jeff, uh, um, thank you for the call. I appreciate the call and the compliments very nice, very much. And your 
uh, your kind words. Couple of things. One, I did hear actually Curtis's comments, and uh, he did say basically what you said, Jeff, that I was a great fundamental baseball player. You're being too kind, and so is Curtis. I am not a great uh, fundamental baseball player. I am a decent softball player. I enjoyed playing baseball in my youth, and um, I played it uh, until I was in high school. But I didn't even I didn't even make my high school team. I tried out, couldn't even make my high school team. So I'm not a great anything player. I, I know baseball. I'd like to think I know the rules. I'd like to think I'm a decent baseball coach. I might be one of these people that's maybe a better baseball coach than they are a uh, than they are a uh, player. And uh, still, I, I consider myself only a decent player. If you were ever drafting for your softball team, you would never ever make me your first pick and say, "Oh, that's a game changing uh, uh, pick." No, I, I, I'm a decent player. If a ball's uh, hit to me, I'm going to catch it. That's about the sum total of my greatness. But you're very kind. And Curtis was kind, too. What I always do and what I will try and teach my son is the importance of always hustling, never walking when you're on a baseball field, always giving 110 percent, never dogging it, no matter the temperature, no matter the score of the game or anything like that. In terms of the speed of the game, though, Jeff, I first of all, I completely disagree with your solution of allowing PEDs for everybody. Um As far as the speed of the game goes, what that would do, if you allow PEDs, even under doctor supervision for everybody, that would allow more Mark McGuire's, more Sammy Sosa's, more Barry Bonds's, more Edgar Martinez, more Brady Anderson's, more, and I hate to say it as a Met fan, more Todd Hundley's. And that would allow a situation where offense so dominates the game. And with more offense, especially now that you're going to have the DH in both leagues, that would lead to even longer games. That would not speed up the game. Uh, and then lastly, of course, athletes should not be role models. You're, of course, right that young people should look to their parents and parents should look to be role models. The fact of the matter is, though, try and tell that to a 10-year-old. Try and tell that to an 11-year-old. Try and tell that to a 12- or a 13-year-old that wants to be a professional athlete. What do you do in any field? If you're a 12, 13, 14-year-old and you want to be a lawyer or uh, anything, you look to people that are doing it now and you trace their career trajectory. And if you see that a lot of these major league players that you idolize are seeing their careers benefit because of taking performance-enhancing drugs, you're going to find a way to take those drugs. And it's going to put the players that don't do it The youth players, the college players that do view their parents as role models instead of these roided-up professional athletes is going to put the players that don't do it as a disadvantage. So I completely disagree with your um, solution of legalizing uh, performance-enhancing drugs in Major League Sports. And look, Arnold Schwarzenegger has talked about his use of steroids, and we've seen what steroids have done for Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. If Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't take steroids, would he have ever achieved what he did in the world of bodybuilding? Had he not achieved what he did in the world of bodybuilding, would he have ever achieved what he did in the world of movies? Had he never achieved what he did in the world of movies, would he have ever achieved what he did in the world of politics? There's a case to be made that if Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't take steroids, he might never have been governor of California. So um, I don't want to sound like I'm soft at all on the use of performance-enhancing drugs. I'm not. But I still come down to the fact that 
the careers of Clemens and Bonds were Hall of Fame careers before they started taking steroids. And as far as Kurt Schilling's exclusion from the Hall of Fame, it's just a joke. I mean, to me, it's just a joke. It's blatant, oh, we don't like you. We know you're a great ball player. We know you're a great pitcher. We don't like you, and we're excluding you. And, and that shouldn't be the case. It, it's not the Hall of Fame at this point. They should change the name to the Hall of People We Like in Cooperstown, New York. 800-848-WABC. We're going to get into some other issues uh, as well. Uh, those of you that are on hold, we will get to you. Uh, some very interesting comments by former New York City Police Commissioner Ray Kelly on the Cats at Night show yesterday. We're going to get into that, as well as a number of other issues over the course of the next two hours and ten minutes. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, unfortunately, uh, New York saw the passing of another hero, uh, Officer Mora, he was the officer that was uh, the the other officer that was shot and was hospitalized after this Harlem ambush uh, last Tuesday. He had been in the hospital and now uh, he has passed away. He's died, and you've been hearing all the coverage on WABC all day about this. And um, I agree with the police commissioner, Commissioner Sewell who said that uh, this was someone who was three times a hero. One, for choosing a life of service. Two, for sacrificing his life to protect others. And three, by being an organ donor, which I am as well and I believe very strongly in, but for giving life even in death through organ donation. I couldn't have said it any better than the police commissioner did, and I admire Officer Mora, and to think that this fella is so young, had his whole life ahead of him, and uh, was willing to give his life to public service, it just makes me want to cry, quite frankly. But uh, this has lent itself to a discussion about where we are with respect to crime, where we are with respect to policing, where we are with respect to the criminal justice system, not just in New York, but the whole country. A phenomenal interview yesterday on uh, the Bernie and Sid show that uh, John Katzmatidis did with our mayor, Eric Adams. And I'm sorry I didn't know about it in advance. Uh, I would have promoted it, but I think it might have come together sort of last minute, but no one told me about it. Uh, A great interview. You can listen to the podcast at WABCradio.com. So John, on his own show, on the Cats at Night show, was all about this. Crime and what's happening to our police officers, and what's happening in our city. And he had on one of the greatest experts on policing in the whole country, maybe even the whole world, and I'm not that's not hyperbole, uh, former New York City police commissioner under Mike Bloomberg and David Dinkins, Ray Kelly, who brought up an issue. You know, they were all critiquing, and they all gave positive reviews to this new Eric Adams plan to get illegal guns off the street and to rein in certain things. And a big part, a lot of the plans that Eric Adams is proposing 
require state legislative approval. And Ray Kelly, to his credit, and I listened to a lot of coverage yesterday on this station and elsewhere, and Ray Kelly was the first person that brought up a very important issue. This is what Commissioner Kelly said on the Cats at Night show last night. You have to remember that people in the state legislature, they're being elected by constituents. People are actually voting for them, and they're approving what what they're doing. It's not that they, they don't know. Ray Kelly is 100% right. Uh, every day I run into people that say, oh, how could the legislature, how could the governor do this? The people that elected, the folks that did this in the state legislature, they know about this, and they want it. If you look at both the state Senate and the state assembly, and there is a point to this, and I'm going to work to get there, and I'm going to work to get there quickly. The state Senate and the state assembly are, they have a super majority for the Democratic Party. The Democratic representatives in both houses have a super majority. And most of the districts that those senators and assembly members represent are one-party districts, a Republican in uh, most of those districts cannot compete. It's not a competitive district. And there are a variety of factors for that, including gerrymandering, which is about to get a whole, mu- a whole, bu- a whole lot worse. Um, if there's time, either today or tomorrow, I will talk a little bit more about what we're going to see in New York in terms of gerrymandering, because it, as uh, Jim Ross would say, business is about to pick up. But Ray Kelly's absolutely right. The people that implemented the bail reform law the discovery reform law, a lot of other differing things that have handcuffed not the criminals but the police, they know what they're doing, and they were elected because they did it. Because in New York State, we have closed primaries, and all you have to do to get elected in district after district is to be the most left-wing person there is. Because if you can win the Democratic primary, you win the general election. So you have, in community after community, elected officials that are far more radical than the constituents they're representing. Because independents don't get to vote. Republicans don't get to vote until the general election. By the time the general election comes around, it's all a fait accompli. Now, there's two solutions to this. We discussed one last year. There was that wealthy woman, and I, I think she's on my list of people that were trying to get on this show, who was trying to get everybody in New York City to register as a Democrat. So that's one solution. We could be like communist China and all choose to join one party, and then that'll make essentially the Democratic primary the one competitive election. Or we could have political reform, and we could have independents and Republicans have a voice in every stage of the process. Nonpartisan elections. Proportional representation. Our policies cannot simply be made by the sliver of people that are willing to vote in primaries. Because those are extremists in both parties. It's got to stop. We need nonpartisan elections. We need it now. More on this in a minute. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is the 
Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. On the right, you have Tucker Carlson, Pat Buchanan, Rand Paul. On the left, you have Glenn Greenwald, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, Tulsi Gabbard. Pretty much anyone else that you've heard of that has an opinion on foreign policy is agitating for war with Russia. Well, not me. Not on this program. I am determined to make this this program radio no war with Russia. If I have one contribution to make to the world, it will be advocating against America going to war with the second largest nuclear power in the world. I will say this until I am out of breath, until I, uh, I have no more words to spew. And we are going to get into the Russia and Ukraine situation at 4.30 with George Beebe. George Beebe is a distinguished American diplomat, a lengthy career in public service. He is um, the author of the book, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe. And I'm sorry to say, I read that book, and it's a wonderful book, and it's not difficult to read, and it's not long. And if you want to know, um, you want a thorough understanding of the Russia situation, it put in layman's terms, it's a wonderful book to read. Again, it's called The Russia Trap. I'm sorry to say that a lot of the things that George Beebe warned about in that book are coming to fruition. And we are about to see it play out in a big way in Ukraine. And we're going to talk with George Beebe at 4.30. Very much looking forward to that conversation. I just want to, I want to put a, a pin in, I want to follow up with what I was just saying and I don't like to do that at the top of the hour. Top of the hour, figure there's new people coming in. I sort of like to wipe the slate clean and, um, you know, start with a new subject. I want to play again what Ray Kelly said on the Cats at Night show yesterday about the people in Albany that gave us these really bizarre criminal justice laws. This is Commissioner Kelly on the Cats at Night show yesterday. You have to remember that people in the state legislature, they're being elected by constituents. People are actually voting for them, and they're approving what, what they're doing. It's not that they, they don't know. It's my contention that when you have closed primaries and, and one-party districts, the combination of those two things, which we have in New York, the most extreme people get elected, and then they implement the most extreme policies, even though that's not necessarily what the voters at large want. It might be what the primary voters, the Democratic primary voters want, but it's not what the voters at large want. That comes on the heels of some interesting data that has come out from um, Axios. New data finds that the nation's most polarizing politicians are often the ones that garner the most attention online. So if you look at the list of the average number of social media interactions on news articles about select politicians. 
Senator Ted Cruz and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez generate the most social media interactions per article. Topping the list are the lightning rods from each party, politicians who fire up their base while providing ammunition for the other party. And then right after uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you guessed it, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right after Marjorie Taylor Greene, you guessed it, Rashida Tlaib. These are people that are very polarizing, people that are very extreme, and they're rewarded for their extremism, not by getting anything done in Washington, but they're rewarded for their extremism by building an army of social media followers, which plays out in terms of benefiting their fundraising when they move on from Congress. It benefits them in terms of... uh, uh, launching lucrative media careers. It benefits them in getting lucrative book deals. The most powerful newsmakers, though, are not the ones that are getting the most social media buzz. If you look at two of the most influential senators in Washington right now, moderate Democratic senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, they're at the bottom of the list, just above the president in terms of social media interaction. So just as I said with Ray Kelly, uh, taking his comments into account, that we need to reform the political infrastructure in this country so that we can give all people, not members of a select political party, a say in choosing their elected officials. We also need to reform, in my opinion, the social media echo chamber that rewards with retweets and shares extremist messaging. You don't see people that are willing to compromise, people that are looking to work with their colleagues across the aisle, people like Nicole Maliotakis and Peter King and Jeff Van Drew and Josh Gottheimer. You don't see them being rewarded with armies of social media followers. So I don't know what the solution is, but I don't like the direction we're going. The, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, these people aren't interested in getting anything done in Washington. They're interested in becoming stars, political stars and media stars, because they'll be able to fundraise, they'll be able to run for higher office, They'll be able to get attention. They'll be able to get on TV. They'll be able to get their clips played on radio. They'll be able to get book deals. And who's the loser in that whole thing? You are. Because that's time they're not spending hammering out deals for the shared benefit of their constituents along with the constituents of the other party. So I don't know what the solution is on the social media front. I believe a big part of the solution is on the political front, political reform. End these closed primaries. Let's have nonpartisan elections. Let's have everybody vote. Let's have everybody run. Uh, all right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on that. There was one story. It's in the New York Post today, and I hadn't seen it until uh, Molly brought it to our attention. And we're happy to have Molly back today. That um, Disney is rethinking Snow White After Peter Dinklage calls out the use of dwarves. Now, Peter Dinklage, if you don't know the name, he's very well known. He was on the television show Game of Thrones. He's been in a ton of movies. 
He was um, he, he won, he's probably the best known now that uh, Vernon Troyer is no longer with us. Probably the best known little person actor in America today. He's uh, he's in a ton of movies. I, I never even saw Game of Thrones, but I I know Peter Dinklage from a lot of the movies that he's been in, including the one that he did with um, with uh, Francis McDormand that was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, but uh, he he's a very good actor. And uh, he was in the movie I Care A Lot, which was also nominated for a Golden Globe. He was in one of the X-Men movies. He was in a comedy, uh, The Boss. He's been in a lot of films. A, a fine, fine actor, even if he wasn't getting these, um, you know, parts that are meant for for little people. So anyway, Peter Dinklage went on the Mark Marin podcast, the Mark Marin WTF podcast, it's called um, WTF, and it's one of the most listened-to podcasts in the whole country. He went on there Monday where he slammed the new Snow White remake. I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know there was a Snow White remake. But there's a new live-action remake of Snow White. And I um, th- that's the thing with Disney now. They're doing live-action remakes of all their animated films. They do it with The Lion King. They did it with Aladdin. They did it with Mulan. They're doing it with all their films. I mean, you think about it, it's an easy ticket to a billion dollars for them. Here are all these films that people love. We already have the script. We already have the story. We already have the soundtrack. Let's just do the exact same thing, only throw some real people in there. It's a pretty easy formula for Disney. So Peter Dinklage has called out the supposedly progressive live-action remake this is what Peter Dinklage said on Mark Maron's podcast Monday. It's really progressive to um, cast a, literally no offense to anything, but I was a little taken back by the very, very, they're very proud to cast a, a Latino actress as Snow White. Yeah. But you're still telling the story of Snow still White. Snow White, yeah. Seven Dwarfs. Sure. So, look, take, take a step back and look at what you're doing there. Yeah. I know. That makes no sense to me. You're progressive in one way, and then, but you're still making that f-ing backward oh, story of about- seven dwarves <laughs> living in a cave. To get, what the f- are you doing, man? We, you know, have yeah, I yeah. have I done nothing to advance the cause <laughs> from my soapbox? I guess I'm not loud enough. So um, he doesn't like that it's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. He doesn't like that it's dwarves living in this cave with and helping Snow White. Now, Disney has responded. A Disney spokesperson told the New York Post to avoid reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film. We are taking a different approach with these seven characters and have been consulting with members of the dwarfism community. We look forward to sharing more as the film heads into production after a lengthy development period. Now, they didn't say, the spokesperson didn't say what the characters might look like instead. So who knows? Maybe they'll be, I don't know, five foot two dwarves or something. I don't know. But the still the film is still years from release. And, um, you know, he talked about how in West Side Story... They casted uh, Rachel Zegler, and he's saying how it's st- it's not appropriate that they're still telling these stories of dwarves. So Peter Dinklage 
again, he himself is a dwarf. He suffers from a type. Not I, I, suffers the right word. I don't want to say the wrong thing unintentionally. He he's afflicted with a type of dwarfism that results in him standing four feet five inches tall. The Disney remake of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is currently in pre-production. They're supposed to start filming this summer in the UK. Now, the original film is a classic. It's from 1937. And it's been recreated in an updated, grittier version called Snow White and the Huntsman, which was actually a pretty good film from about 10 years ago with Kristen Stewart, Stewart as Snow White, Charlize Theron as the Queen, and it also showed dwarves being portrayed by people of normal height. So maybe that's what they'll do here. I don't know what the situation will be. But tell me, do you find that offensive to the dwarfism community that there still are likely to be dwarves in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? 800-848-9222. Or should Peter Dinklage have waited? Look, Disney says they're going to have a more progressive version of this film. They're going to talk to the dwarfism community. Should he have waited and held his powder dry before going on the Mark Marin podcast and saying, what the F are you doing, man? And look, whether you're a dwarf or not, welcome to call in. Is there anything wrong with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Should it be Snow White and the uh, Seven Vertically Challenged Cave Dwellers? Would you feel more comfortable with that? Should be Snow White and Seven Short People, 800-848-WABC. This falls into my category, and look, I I respect Peter Dinklage, and I imagine he's had a tough time going through life, even though he is a world-famous actor. I'm sure he's pretty wealthy by now. Uh, I'm sure he's had a tough time going through life as a dwarf. But this goes into my category of, Don't we all have better things to worry about than this? Look, I'm a poor messenger for that message because I spend hours on this show talking about nonsense. So, I mean, I'm really in no position to say, shouldn't we talk about something more substantive than this? But I just really wonder what the benefit is of creating a controversy over the Snow White, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, a story which is a classic story, a lovable family film, and something that a lot of people have enjoyed for the better part of, you know, 80-something years. Is it that big of a deal if it's still Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? What do you think? 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-WABC. He then added... Have I so I played you the clip? Have I done nothing to advance the cause from my soapbox? I guess I'm not loud enough. Now I didn't hear the whole podcast. Um, they they said he he said if you tell the story of Snow White with the most effed up, cool or progressive spin on it, let's do it all in. I'm not sure what Peter Dinklage wants. That's what I'm not clear about, just on the media coverage based on that podcast. So 800-848-WABC if you want to comment. One, two, three open lines. Uh, Let me say hello to Carol in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. Hey, I'm five foot four, and I consider myself small. Um, I'm not much taller than you, Carol, so I'm pretty small as well. I I don't think I'm suffering from dwarfism, but but I am short. Um. I could see why he might be some a little bit offended or somewhat offended. 
But they can have people that are five feet tall or four eleven, five feet tall. You know, they don't have to have dwarves playing the seven dwarves. I mean, I, I, I don't know what they're planning on doing, but I, I do agree with you with Snow White and the Huntsman. I thought that was a pretty good film. Absolutely. Right, right. Well, as and thank you, Carol. As I alluded to in that film, they had people of normal height playing the dwarf. So maybe that's what they'll do here. Uh, maybe that's would satisfy what Peter Dinklage wants. I'm not so sure. I don't know. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. It's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. We'll uh, change it to Keep the Ralphs. There Frank, you go. I'm going to make a prediction. Within five years, you will be doing this show from Nashville. And before I get to, to the meat and potatoes, uh, baseball, which everyone wants to hear, uh, the Jacoby uh, Hospital emergency room shooting actually took place in the waiting room. And if you watch the video, the shooter runs a few feet, fires at the guy. Now you stop the video. There's a, there's a guy like standing right next to the victim and a woman sitting right there with a baby. That's it. I think Nashville's next, Frank. Um, before, you know, and plus, if I called this show regularly and talked about sports, you would take a sizable chunk. You would remove it from FAM, believe me. And I bring in the younger demographics. And uh, on baseball now, let's look at it this way. Um, Bonds was nasty with the media. Clemens had his run-ins with the media, but he could get nasty with them too. And we know Schilling, um, he goes around telling everybody he's a conservative most of the guys in the media are liberals, so they don't like it. They're holding it against them. But there's something called the ARA Committee, which put Gil Hodges in. He's sure. going in. They will put Schilling in there. And I, I've always felt all along that the thing with the steroids, now you, people have to realize steroids go back a real long, they go back to the 1930s. Uh, the greenies, they were called in the clubhouse. I don't know, they said they were mixing them with coffee. It sounds like a bunch of junkies to me. But um, they were in the clubhouse. From the from the 1950s on, and uh, I used to tell the joke Reggie Jackson was against steroids and everything. He would go off to the plays at the steroids, and I would say, you know, Reggie was in California in in the 1970s when Arnold was running around jabbing everybody with needles, right? But I, I really believe that um, when it when it comes to steroids, it's widespread use in sports today. You wouldn't believe how many players do use it. We know all the big names. We know these players use a lot of different drugs. So unfortunately, you can do what you want with the Hall of Fame. I know they've watered the Hall of Fame down. And the thing is, the reporters do they do lean left. And I want to just say something. If you want to speed up, I'm going to finish up with this. If you you want to speed up baseball games, right? Consider uh, if a fan catches a foul ball, it's an out, right? You know, you you brought this up before, Steve, and I actually am going to suggest this to uh, John Katzmatidis, the owner of the new Atlantic League team, the Ferry Hawks, along with Pete Davidson and Colin Jost, uh, who are partners in that team, along with the Rocks' ex-wife. I think that's a very interesting idea, and I don't know that it would work on the major league level, but I think it might be fun on the independent league level. 800-848-WABC. Bill is in Oakland, New Jersey. Hello, Bill. Hi, Frank. Hi. Yeah, I wanted to comp, uh, comment on the Dinklage story. Please. Uh, yes, I think it would be good if Disney hired actual seven dwarves to work on the film. It would give them jobs. 
Well, perhaps that'll, that's what will happen. I mean, P- Disney says they're going to take the views of the dwarfism community into account, but they're not really saying what exactly that looks like. So if they are, in fact, going to hire seven dwarves, then, you know, an argument can be made that they're providing acting opportunity to actors that wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity. Exactly. But I will say it would be funny if they did take the full-size actors and shrink them down somehow. Well, you could do that easily uh, digitally now with, uh, with uh, you know, and that happens. You know, I think that happened in some of the uh, the Hobbit films where they play, where I they had regular actors playing it, Hobbits. Right. And, but visually it would just be, you know, funny to watch. Sure. No, 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 absolutely. Bill, thank you very much for the call. 800-848-WABC. Cheech is calling from Howard Beach. Hello, Cheech. Hey, good morning, Frank. Uh, I'm just one of those voices, but I, I woke up a little bit late uh, when, you were speaking you. About, um, when you were speaking about the, uh, the Democratic primaries and the people who vote. You know, I think the answer is that and the only way we can do this is I'm going to try to promote it. Everybody should join the Democratic Party and try to, you know, vote in the primaries because we have to destroy this from the inside out. We're not going to have the money to uh, to uh, go against these uh, these globalists that support these little candidates. And uh, I, I want to thank you for saying that because you're getting the word out. And I think uh, who was that? You said there was a rich woman in Manhattan. Uh, yeah, I believe, that, uh, I believe her name was uh, Catherine Grell. I'll, I'll I'll get you her name. But we we talked about it at the time. Basically, what she said, what they did is they spent a lot of money, and they sent um, a piece of mail to every non-Democratic voter in New York City, including me, uh, including my wife. And they said, look, the the mayor oh, mayoral election is going to be decided in the Democratic primary. If you want to have a voice, you should switch parties to v- become a Democrat so that you could vote. And um, there was a big debate, and I played the audio a year ago, with John Katsimatidis debated his daughter, Andrea. John actually seemed receptive to this idea, whereas his daughter said, no, 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 that's not the that's not the uh, solution. And I talked about it at the time. And a lot of people have said that this makes that this makes sense. Um, My dad actually was saying he's not a Democrat, but he he's a um, Republican. But he was saying that if you want to put an end to the far left dominance of the Democratic Party, um, you should have everybody should essentially become a Democrat so that more moderate people can emerge as the, um, you know, as the nominees of the Democratic Party. I I don't like that. Uh, I much prefer advocating for nonpartisan elections because, to me, it looks too much like communist China, a one-party system where, hey, if if you're – where there's no no real opposition in the general election. I don't don't like that, um, you know, that that system at all. I understand that, Frank, but you think the Democratic Party is going to allow – Nonpartisan elections? I don't think that's going to happen. Well, you know, it's such a good point, Cheech, and that's what other people have said, right? Um, uh, now, I, I am buoyed by two facts. I mean, two two factors, I should say. One, Eric Adams has traditionally been a huge booster of nonpartisan elections. If you go back and listen to the debates on this issue in 2003, other than Mike Bloomberg and other than me, the biggest cheerleader in New York City for nonpartisan elections was Eric Adams. So I'm hoping 
that he you, takes that same tack now. Jamani Williams, same thing. Uh, he testified along with me in 2019 at the Charter Revision Commission in support of nonpartisan elections. And um, the fact that you have two citywide office, office holders that have advocated publicly for nonpartisan elections, that gives me a little bit of hope. Now, in addition, um, I do think that maybe uh, somebody like Ron Lauder will play a role in getting this on the ballot. Remember, the only reason we have term limits in New York, do you think the people that run New York City ever would have given us term limits? Of course they wouldn't have. Ron Lauder funded a petition drive to get the question of term limits on the ballot in New York City. Well, I have reached out to Ron Lauder's people, and I've asked for a meeting with Ron Lauder to try and get, you know, that same situation, only this time for nonpartisan elections, through go directly to the people. 800-848-WABC. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, good morning. Um, I'm just curious. I want to make sure if I missed something or not. But Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is uh, that that is a fictional movie. That's a fantasy based <laughs> movie, correct? I, I think so. Yeah, it's not supposed to be a documentary. Right. I don't think it was. Uh, there's no disclaimer that this is based on, uh, you know, historical events of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So if moving forward. Let's say there's a, you know, there's a big UFO community in, in throughout the world. And whether you agree with them or not, there is a good amount of people who believe there is a uh, uh, life beyond the planet Earth. If they don't agree with your depiction of alien life, are they too going to have a platform to say, hey, how dare you assume that these are all green people or green mystical you know, non-speaking, big-eyed, big-head figures. Who do you think you are? That is a terrific point, an absolutely uh, terrific point. Thank you very much, Jr. Um, by the way, let me just correct what I was saying before. I mentioned Catherine Grell as the woman who was funding the initiative in New York City to get people to switch parties to the Democrat. I, I was incorrect. And that's what I get for relying on my memory. And unlike Curtis, I'm not going to call in. I'm going to invite you to call in with a faux trivia question. Catherine Grell is funding initiatives around the country to get people to convert to top two or top four elections. Top two is what they have in California. Top four is what they're moving to or what they've moved to in Alaska. I'm not for that either uh, for a host of reasons. But the woman that was trying to get uh, all these people to become Democrats and spent Almost $2 million getting Republicans and independents to become Democrat was Lisa Blau, whose husband, Jeff Blau, is the CEO of Related Companies. She launched a PAC to get that happen. But look, if her goal was to get a more moderate Democrat uh, nominee for mayor, she did so. Uh, she didn't succeed in the DA's race, that's for sure. 800-848-WABC. Uh, we'll be back with your calls, your comments, your questions. In mere moments. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
Groove. This is the other side of midnight. We are grooving along. Hey, by the way, speaking of the officer, the uh, passing of Officer Mora and uh, all the other police officers that we've already lost this year, my guest tomorrow at around 1.30 will be my friend Sergeant Joe Imperatrice from uh, Blue Lives Matter. And uh, we're going to talk about the assault that our police officers are under all over the country, what Blue Lives Matter is doing to help the families of fallen officers, and what individual people can do uh, to um, stop the relentless attack on police officers, not only physically, but rhetorically as well. Now, I could do this whole show every day, four hours a day, five days a week, on one subject which is political correctness run amok. I'm not going to do that because I would jump out this window. But this is a story that I just have to mention because I am crossing off one Washington community, Washington State community, from my list of places to live. A school board outside of Seattle has voted to stop requiring students to read To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, I read To Kill a Mockingbird in middle school. I think I read it again in high school. It's a wonderful book, a fine film as well. It's actually one of the better film adaptations of a novel. It's a wonderful book. Harper Lee. And it's all about racism and injustice in the Jim Crow era Deep South. It's all about making the racists in that story look like morons. It's all about making uh, a black character look like a hero and making those that stand up for that black character look like heroes. And now the Mokulteo School Board has approved a resolution to remove To Kill a Mockingbird from its ninth grade curriculum after complaints that it was racially insensitive. The move had the support of the district's superintendent. Parents, students, and teachers overwhelmingly spoke out against requiring students to read the book at this board meeting that they had on Monday night. Quote, it was clear from the comments received that there are many legitimate and thoughtful opinions about this novel and its place in school curriculum, district spokesperson Diane Bradford. The students who shared their experiences and thoughts with the board were especially compelling in their reasoning that there are other novels that can teach some similar literary conventions and themes without causing further harm to students. Now, they do use the N-word in that book, and there are some characters that use racial epithets and reinforce racial stereotypes, but on the whole... I think it is a wonderful book all about overcoming racism and growing beyond the narrow parameters of your own upbringing. If you haven't read the book, it's wonderful. Set during the Great Depression in Alabama, written through the eyes of a child who's learning all about the horrors of segregation, learning all about racism, and I guess because they use the N-word, a great deal in the book. Some people were offended by it. I think, look, I'm a big believer that communities should decide for themselves what they want to do. I don't like to dictate to any community what they should do. 
But this is a crock. This is such baloney. This is a wonderful piece of literature. This is a wonderful piece of literature that opposes racism. And they're going to stop making kids read it? I feel bad for these kids. And I'm sure a lot of the kids that testified, I'm sure a lot of the parents that testified, I'm sure a lot of the activists that testified, I'm sure legitimately that they really did have the best of intentions. But this is preposterous. At least I think so. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. If you want to weigh in on this, if you want to weigh in on Snow White, if you want to weigh in on just about anything else we've covered, you're welcome to do so. We're going to talk with George Beebe about the Russia situation at uh, 430. We also got the $1,000 Minute coming up. 800-848-9222-1234. open lines if you want to jump on board. Um, I will tell you, <clears throat> on Sunday... My mother came over after my experience with the dog, you know, trying to corral a Doberman so that I could achieve the three goals of not having that dog get hit by a car, not be bitten by that dog, and reuniting that dog with its rightful owner, who, by the way, is irresponsible enough to keep letting that dog escape and not to make that dog wear a collar. Tune into yesterday's podcast if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Find it at fmwabc.com. After I got home, you know, I wanted to watch the football games. But I had friends over. I had friends come over. And uh, it was my friend Sal came over. My brother came over. My sister came over. And my mom came over. And they, everybody wants to see the baby who uh, officially turned two months old yesterday. Looks great for two months if you want to see his photo. You can go to uh, Facebook.com slash fan. That is actually his cry, unlike so many of the sound effects that Matt Blaze occasionally plays. This is him, right? That's it. That's not him. Please. Um, so anyway, I have an uh, updated crying recording. Maybe we'll play it tomorrow. But so my mom came over, and my mom does what mothers do, whether you're mother of someone that's two months old, 20 years old, 70 years old. What mothers do is they worry. So my mom says, you know, the air in your tire is really low because I parked my car right in the front of the right in front of the house. She says the air in your tire is really low. I said, oh, okay, thanks, mom. She says, uh, you can't uh, you can't go to you can't go to work driving on that kind of a tire. So all right, mom, thanks. And she's insistent. My mother's like me in that she's a little obsessive about certain things. She's like a dog with a bone. So she's over maybe an hour and a half, two hours. She keeps coming back to that issue of don't drive in with a tire. So I stayed up to watch the um, Buccaneers game, which was an incredible game. All the games this weekend were just incredible. I've never seen a weekend of football like the one we just had. But the uh, Rams beat the Buccaneers. Incredible game. And then my my friend Sal was over. He was kind enough to bring cannolis, which is the last thing I need. But uh, everyone else really enjoyed them. So I go to, I said to Rachel, you know, I want to stay up and watch the Chiefs, but I have to take a nap. I, I, otherwise, I'm not going to be able to function. So I go to sleep, and I, I oversleep a little bit. I had intended to sleep for an hour or two. I think I slept for about three and a half hours, and I still had a lot of work to do on the show. So I ended up getting a little bit later of a start on coming into work than I otherwise would have. And I really didn't have a great deal of time 
to stop at the uh, gas station to get air. So Rachel says, look, they're predicting snow anyway. I'm going to be home with Carmine all day. Take my car. Take Because she has a sport utility vehicle. Take my car. You don't have to worry about stopping to get air. Just drive in with this car. Just don't get any tickets. Don't get into any accidents. And then so be it. So that's what I did. So Monday, Sunday night into Monday morning, I took her car in. Yesterday, Tuesday, I um, Monday night into Tuesday, I stopped when I was running some errands to go to the bank and go elsewhere. I stopped to get gasoline. And so I went to the bank to deposit some checks first. And I had a dollar. I said, gee, well, look, I have 50 cents on me. But I don't know how much air is these days. I mean, air shouldn't be anything. But um, let me let me get change for a dollar anyway. Maybe it's a dollar, not 50 cents. So I'm at the bank. I give them a dollar bill. They give me four quarters. Lo and behold, I go get gas. I fill up. And then I go pull over to the air pump. Would you believe, would you believe it was not free air, which is what it should be. It was not 50 cents. It wasn't even a dollar. They were charging at this local gas station, which is the cheapest gas in my neighborhood. They were charging a dollar 50 for gas. A dollar 50 for three minutes worth of gas. You should be able to breathe air, uh, not uh, not gas, three, three minutes worth of air. You should be able to breathe air for free at all times. A dollar fifty is just way too much. It's crazy. It's a crazy amount of money. And you know what? The air pump that they have, it doesn't even have an air gauge yeah, or like a, a gauge that you could tell, oh, this is the tire pressure. It's one of these these lame air pumps where you just push it in and you have to guess at what the proper amount of air pressure is. Now, I hope I filled it the right amount. It's all filled up now, the one that was low. But um, I don't know. I still have the low tire pressure indicator on my dashboard. $1.50 for air? Look, if you don't think inflation is real, then you are out of your mind. $1.50 for air. I understand paying for gas. I understand paying for food. We're paying $1.50 for air. This is nuts. I don't want to live in a country where air costs $1.50. So, I, I, I mean, I was outraged as I was, do, as I was looking over this. I, I was, and they only take quarters. Not like you can swipe your credit card. Now, fortunately, I had the wherewithal to get change for a dollar, and I had the 50 cents on me that I happen to have on me. So I had the dollar fifty for three minutes of air, and I filled up that tire. But I mean, what an inconvenience! What an annoyance! What a ripoff! I'll tell you the one silver lining is somebody else was probably in the similar similar situation to me. They probably went to get air, and then probably saw it was a dollar fifty, and you needed only quarters. And then they probably went to get change. While I was filling up my tire, I did find on the ground. 75 cents in quarters. And and I look, I wasn't going to put up a flyer to see whose 75 cents that was or run into the gas station that was ripping me off for $1.50 worth of air and say, hey, I found the 75 cents. Here you go. I kept that 75 cents. So I viewed it as my little rebate for being outraged and inconvenienced at the price of air. I can't even believe I'm saying that. The price of air. So then 
I also noticed, and I have to check with some of my car, uh, my more knowledgeable car friends, like Mike Porcelli, maybe even Arthur Idala. As I was filling the tire that was noticeably low, I just said, let me top off all the other tires as well. I, look, I want to get my $1.50's worth of three, three minutes of air. And I get to my front driver's side tire, and I notice the screw top that goes on the tire, it's missing. Now, I don't know where it is. Somebody, I don't know if somebody unscrewed it. I don't know if an unscrupulous person took unscrupulous to mean that they should be unscrewing my tire cap. But I'm not sure if that means that the tire is going to um, lose air. It didn't look low. I'm not sure how long this tire cap uh, has been missing. But I'm hopeful that I can still drive on it without it having a problem. I mean, look, I drove on it, been driving on it for two days. And uh, so far, no no flat tire or anything like that. But, look, the car, it's a lease. My, uh, I'm due for maintenance and an oil change anyway. So I'm going to go in, hopefully next week, if I can make it that long, unless something happens with this front driver's side tire. But I'm going to go in for maintenance next week, get the oil changed, have them look at the slow leak in my rear tire that was low that my mother noticed. And then I'm going to uh, bring up this issue of the tire cap missing. So... That was my experience in automotive adventures this week. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, uh, but first, look, when I was growing up, air was free. I came of age at a time that air was a quarter. I started doing this radio show at a time when air was 50 cents. I am now living in a time where air is $1.50. If you look at how we measure inflation in this country. We, we, we exclude the price of food and energy. Now, what sense does that make? It makes zero sense. Certainly doesn't make for 150 cents. Inflation is out of control. And how do I know that inflation is out of control? Because I had to inflate my tires, and I was a victim of inflation by spending $1.50. Now, let's all acknowledge what we can plainly see in front of our eyes. That inflation is very real, and it's not going anywhere. Prices are going up. Price of everything is going up. Gasoline, food, cars, air. So what do you do about it? Well, gold, silver, and precious metals are your hedge against inflation. Gold and precious metals offer a hedge against inflation. The worse inflation gets, the more the price of gold goes up. That means if your money is sitting in a traditional retirement account... It is getting eaten away right under your nose. There is a solution. The solution is gold. And the people that are offering that solution are Legacy Precious Metals. Legacy is the company that you can trust because they give you unbiased information based on your individual situation. If you're interested in whipping inflation now, breaking the back of inflation, contact Legacy Precious Metals today. Call 866 932 0635. That's 866-932-0635. Or you can visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. I really do think that what we saw from the stock market last week, which I think was the worst week the stock market has had uh, since, you know, since the pandemic, I think that is a harbinger of things to come. I really do. And gold is a great way to make sure that your wealth is preserved. LegacyPMInvestments.com. 
Request some information for free when you do. Tell them you heard about it from me, Frank Moreno. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. You're hearing things. You're hearing things. On 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight. That's the Venga bus. Boom, boom, boom. I'm Frank Morano, uh, 800-848-WABC. I got a very funny, very funny SMS text message from my friend Obi Murray, who's one of the finest uh, crisis communications specialists and political consultants in the world. He said of my commentary on To Kill a Mockingbird, I heard you read the Cliff Notes and watched the new movie but never read the book. Is that true? That is not true. I did read the book. That's a short book. You don't need to read the Cliff Notes for that book. You need to read the Cliff Notes of a book like Othello or something. Well, I, I don't know. It's not. It's not the length of Othello that makes it difficult to read. It's the Shakespearean language. Uh, Molly suggests that as a compromise, maybe they can have people read the Aaron Sorkin adaptation of um, To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't like that. Too much walking and talking for my taste. Uh, 800-848-9222. Hey, so it's only took me 28 years, but I finally got around to seeing the movie Natural Born Killers. Have you seen Natural Born Killers? Now, it's it's from 1994, so I'm way late to the... That's how behind I am in watching films. A lot of you are kind enough to send me film recommendations from time to time, and uh, I put them on my list. I do. But sometimes it takes me a couple of decades to get to them all. And anyway, it's a, it's a film. I, I thought I was really going to love this film because directed by Oliver Stone, who I really, really like as a director. The screenplay was by Oliver Stone, who's very talented as a writer. The story was by Quentin Tarantino, who I like. And the cast is a cast of people that I just love. Woody Harrelson, Robert Downey Jr., Juliette Lewis, Tommy Lee Jones. Rodney Dangerfield in a supporting role. Um, I have to tell you, look, I liked the film, and I thought it was creative. I thought the um, the way that they, the, first of all, it's very funny. The acting is great. The combination of action and romance, the plot really moved. The way that it sort of held up a, a mirror to the way that the media covers real-life violence was interesting. But... Uh, I mean, you want to talk about a film that is really unnecessarily violent. And I get that that's sort of the point that they were making. This film is, I mean, I, I don't know that there's a scene in the film that doesn't have pretty disturbing violence in it. So uh, I liked it. I'm glad I finally saw it. But uh, you could see why. This was named back in 2006 the eighth most controversial film in history by Entertainment Weekly, and you can absolutely see why. I mean, it struck me as really needlessly 
violent in the extreme. So if you haven't seen it, if you're a Woody, Har- uh, Woody Harrelson fan and you can deal with the violence uh, or you're a Tarantino fan or an Oliver Stone fan, maybe it's worth seeing. But uh, it's certainly not the kind of film that I would ever watch uh, with a child. But uh, I finally saw it, and it's supposed to be a satire on the media. And the Robert Downey Jr. character on that film is actually based on my old friend Steve Dunleavy. And when I interviewed Steve Dunleavy, I played clips of Robert Downey's portrayal of him in that film. And you know what? Downey's portrayal of Dunleavy, or the Dunleavy-type character, is not that far off. All right, uh, squeeze in as many of the calls as we can. Any subject is fair game until we get to um, George Beebe and we discuss the Russia situation at 4.30. Larry in Brooklyn has been very patiently holding. Hello, Larry. Oh, hi, Freddie. I'd like to comment on two things. Go uh, nuts, Larry. Go ahead. You've earned it. First of all, your your, your political ideas, uh, I believe, is flawed because it assumes that people will never vote Republican in New York as a fait accompli when we see that happen during Rudy Giuliani. Now, if, if you think that that won't happen again, then that is really the problem of the people themselves. Well, Larry, and I want to hear your other comment, but let me just respond. I, I What I was responding to specifically was what Ray Kelly said about the people that wrote the bail reform law and the people that wrote the discovery reform law, and that's the state legislature. Uh, and uh, the state legislature, you have these districts that are drawn specifically to be one-party districts through gerrymandering. So it's not that the Republicans can't compete or that people in a general election won't vote Republican. You have a situation in New York where it's the politicians that are choosing their voters rather than the other way around. They draw the districts so that no Republican or independent can be competitive in the general. Okay, I didn't hear that issue. That, okay, then, you, then I concede you're right about that. Now, my other, my other uh, it's just the other things I, I objected to. But if that's the, if that's the case, then you, then, then definitely has to change. Um, now, my other thing is I was waiting to talk about the. Uh, the baseball issue, because you kept on hammering home, uh, no pun intended, hammering home the fact that they had that they had Hall of Fame careers before they went on steroids. But that really is irrelevant. Why is it irrelevant? Because in baseball, as in other sports, but especially baseball, statistics is everything. If they're performing enhancement years uh, created, like, for example, Boggs, he would have to go in. If he went into the Hall of Fame, he'd have to go in as the home run king. We all know he's not the home run king, not only because of the steroids, but because when Barry Bonds went to the plate, he didn't just go to the plate himself. He went with a whole bunch of equipment that looked like he was a uh, it was his own caddy or something, you know, like, like carrying a golf cart, you know, with, with, with arm protectors and uh, shin protectors and two two uh, batting gloves. Hank Aaron, I don't think ever wore a batted glove in his life. Okay, and you know, I mean, as far as uh, short swings go, I mean, as far as power goes, Barry Bonds put it in the bay because he was all pumped up. Hank Aaron would flick his wrist, and the ball would fly out of the park. So he would have to go in as the home run king. How could you? How could he go in as the home run king if Hank Aaron is the real home run king? 
Well, uh, look, uh, good points all, Larry. Uh, I'm not going to re- repeat everything I said earlier, but I will advert to my prior statement. If you didn't catch what I said earlier on the subject of the Hall of Fame, I'd invite you to check out our podcast. Just search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano on any podcast app. Make sure you hit subscribe. You can also just go to wabcradio.com and listen to any portion that you missed. Coming up in just a moment, I have something really interesting planned. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, I'm not tired yet. I'm Frank Morano with you for one more hour before the WABC early news. Great to be here. Um, I'm, those of you that are holding, and I appreciate the fact that you've been uh, patiently holding, I will get to you in a mere moment. Uh, those of you that want to be heard from, 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 Nine, two, 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 two stories that I have to bring to your attention. One, a listener brought to my attention and I'd seen the headline, but uh, I mean, whatever. You know, I, I read a lot of news uh, every day and I read a lot of non-news. So a lot of times if uh, there's not an issue that requires my immediate attention, I just kind of absorb it and then move on. And I had seen this story a few days ago. But uh, I don't know. For some reason, I didn't make a note to talk about it. But I got an email from JJ, a listener named JJ. And uh, JJ, I don't know if it's a male or a female or the, or a non-binary person. But this person brought this issue to my attention. And I started looking at it a bit more. And I have to say, I find this pretty alarming. Okay? The IRS is moving to require some taxpayers to use facial recognition to identify themselves. Now, this is, to me, pretty alarming. This was announced back in November, but it attracted a lot of attention last week after security expert Brian Krebs highlighted the change on his blog. And we may invite Brian Krebs on this show to talk about this. But critics are warning that without sufficient guardrails, information collected by one agency, in this case the IRS, for a seemingly benign purpose, in this case paying taxes, could easily be reused in other ways. The IRS will soon require taxpayers to provide a third-party company, not a government company, a third-party company, Uh, It's called ID.me, with a combination of documents and a video selfie to verify their identity before undertaking certain online interactions with the agency. Now, what they're saying 
is that this announcement signals one of the largest expansions of facial recognition technology in the U.S., and there's no question that it will harm people's privacy. Now, listen to this. ID, I found this very alarming because initially when I saw the headlines, I said, oh, this has got to be one of these Internet memes that people are getting all worked up about. Let me actually research it and tell people that there's nothing to worry about. Look, I researched it. There's a lot to worry about. So if you read the terms of service for this third-party company that we're going to have to use our faces to pay our taxes with, ID.me, listen to this. The terms of service for ID.me give the company, not a government agency, a private company, the right to share people's data with police. Okay, I have a little bit of a problem with that, but okay. Government, all right, okay, got to pay taxes. I have a little bit of a problem with that too, okay. And this is a quote, select partners. Excuse me. And that's my best Steve Martin impersonation. Excuse me. Select partners. Who are these select partners? Who are they sharing your facial recognition data with? I see this as a disaster waiting to happen. Now, the involvement of a private company in general with such sensitive information like people's social security numbers and their tax information, their incomes, that's bad enough. Then, on top of that, you're going to give them everybody's facial recognition information? Excuse me, what could go wrong? You want to talk about a hack that could lead, uh, lead to a data breach that makes the credit card data breach at um, uh, Target a few years ago look like tiddlywinks. This also raises... Questions regarding this particular company. So when ID.me was rolled out for state unemployment benefits, we heard from a lot of people that had issues with this system. Not only is it an issue that ID.me misidentifies people of color, but the system requires people to have a smartphone or a web camera in order to submit photos. That means a lot of people who are poor and older people who might have a difficult time using a smartphone are going to have greater challenges getting through the system. Jay Stanley, a senior policy analyst with the ACLU, not exactly considered a right-wing group. Am I right? This is what they said. This basically is putting a private company between people and the government services that they need. Absolutely right. This is absolutely right. I am, and again, to quote from this ACLU guy, who I may invite also to comment on this on the show, because I'm not letting this issue go. They are forced to you, meaning taxpayers, they are forced to use this company if they want to access services to which they're entitled. Exactly. Exactly. For the privilege of paying taxes, you have to give a private company all of your data and a picture of your face. What in the world could go wrong? Uh, They want to share your information with select partners? What stops ID.me from selling this to somebody that wants to market stuff to you, like, say, a tax preparation agency, and that's one of the more benign intentions that I can think of off the top of my head, or for a mil... You know the money they could make by selling all of your information, your face, your location, your address... Your income, they could sell this to any marketing company in the world and make a billion dollars. And we're supposed to just trust them? And and let's say they screw us. Let's say they're hacked. 
let or they uh, they don't use this data properly. Let's say either they're hacked, and as a result of their incompetence, this data gets out there to people it shouldn't be, or because of their nefarious intent, it gets out there to people that they're that it shouldn't be. What's our recourse? You can't go to the you can't go to the polls and vote against them because they're a private agency. There's no recourse whatsoever. Now, ID.me, I want to give the devil their due. They have defended their technology and practices. Their CEO, Blake Hall, said the company's committed to making its service both equitable and available, including a new option for people to verify their identify their identity in person at more than 650 cases in the United States. I find this absolutely insane. We already know the IRS is a bit understaffed and they're already facing a tough battle to process all the country's tax returns in a timely manner. Tax evasion is a problem. Underpayment remains a problem. I have a lot of solutions if anyone wants to hear them. I've talked about some of them before. This is not the solution. Um, The U.S. government has been increasing its use of facial recognition technology overall, and this is not a good thing from where I'm standing. Some cities, Portland, Minneapolis, San Francisco, Boston, big shout out to Jennifer in Boston, they've actually passed laws limiting use of this technology, but there's been little to no action on the federal level to set guidelines. Now, verifying one's identity using ID.me is not required of everyone who needs to file taxes. It's for those looking to check their accounts online or get a transcript online. Um, I, but you think this is the end of it? Of course not. This is going to expand like crazy. Once they start, once they creep open the door to using of facial recognition technology, it is going to be pervasive, not just with the IRS, but every other agency. One hundred percent. And the fact that it's being outsourced to a private company, I don't like this. I don't like this one bit. Uh, hey, the other story that I had to comment on was the passing of a woman who seems like a pretty amazing woman, Mary Manzo. At 102 years old, I have to tell you, I had never heard of Mary Manzo, but I saw a fascinating obituary written by our colleague David Wildstein in the New Jersey Globe. Now, if you're not familiar with David Wildstein, he was kind of a controversial political operative, as evidenced by his role in the Bridgegate scandal. And now he's the editor of the New Jersey Globe, which is a wonderful publication if you want to be informed of what's going on in New Jersey, especially politically. And he's on our station every Saturday at 4 o'clock hosting the uh, New Jersey Globe Power Hour. He's been a guest on this show multiple times. He was the one, when I interviewed him in the 5 o'clock hour the day after the election, he was the first person that I heard report anywhere that Steve Sweeney had lost the election. He's a very well-informed guy and a guy that sounds good, you know, because – it's one thing to be informed, but if you don't sound good, eh, where are you going from there? It's like if you read uh, the book The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when they talk about searching for the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything, 42 just doesn't cut it. You ultimately need something that sounds good. Now, I digress. Mary Manzo, and I'm going to take your calls on this IRS issue in a second, And uh, anything else you want to comment on, just bear with me here. We're going to talk with George Beebe. We'll talk Russia at 4.30. Mary Manzo is probably best known because her two sons 
ran against one another for Jersey City mayor back in 1992. So uh, her two sons ran for mayor against one another in 1992. Her two sons, one was Hudson County freeholder Louis Manzo, who I've actually interviewed before and read his book. He's a pretty bright guy. But I had no idea about this chapter of his career. And former city Democrat, Jersey City Democratic Municipal Chairman Alan Manzo, they both ran for mayor in the same election, in a 19-candidate special election following the criminal conviction of Mayor Gerald McCann. Now, neither of them won. Um, Brett Schundler won. A Republican was able to slip in there because all these Democrats that were running sort of split the vote amongst one another. And Brett Schundler was able to win with uh, 17.6% of the vote. But um, to me, I had never heard of a big city mayoral race in which two brothers ran against one another. And I thought I had seen everything in local politics. I have never seen a story where two brothers, even when they disagree, ran against one another. And to, um, th- this woman actually made an endorsement. She endorsed her son, Lewis. So I, I may invite Lewis Manzo back on the show uh, if Chris Christie gets closer to running for president because Manzo wrote a book very critical of Christie, and I thought it was pretty accurate. And um, I, uh, I'm going to ask him about this chapter of his life, which I was totally naive about. Can you imagine running against your own brother? My brother Nicholas and I, we have a great many political differences. I would never run against my brother. Never. Not in a thousand years. There is something kind of cool about that, though. There is. I don't know. You know, it's um, it's funny. I've always been intrigued by the relationship between brothers that go down different paths. I think the best example of that is the uh, the Bulger brothers in Massachusetts. You had James Whitey Bulger, who became the most powerful criminal in Massachusetts, and his brother, William Bulger, who became the most powerful politician in Massachusetts. And here they were, brothers. And I, I said, wouldn't, wouldn't that be – I said to my wife recently, wouldn't that be fun if we had two sons and they went through disparate paths like that, one becoming a powerful politician and one becoming a powerful gangster? And my wife just shook her head at me and she said, oh, I bet you'd love that. Truth is, I probably would. 800-848-WABC, any subject that we've covered in the last three hours and 13 minutes, you are welcome to comment on. Let me begin with Nikki in Manhattan. Hello, Nikki. Hello, Frank. I am shocked by this IRS thing. Now, has this actually been put into effect? Or they, well, it's the happening. They are, they are in the process of implementing it. It's not going to be for all taxpayers, just for people that want to review their transcripts online. But as I said, Nikki, you know this is just the IRS putting their toe in the water. They are going to move towards facial recognition for everybody eventually. It's the government. I mean, this is uh, outrageous. And I wonder who actually owns what the money is behind ID me. I think that needs to be looked at. Well, I'm sure the IRS is paying them to do this. Oh, I know. But who owns the company? Who put it together? Right. That's a good question. I I don't know much about the CEO, Brett Hall, but I will certainly uh, explore that a great deal more. Well, on the bright side, Frank, if it comes up for a vote, at least we don't have to have any ID to uh, 
to the polls and vote. That's right. It it is interesting. These same uh, people that implemented this policy, I haven't heard much of a rallying cry from them to do facial recognition for voting. I'm not saying that we should, but it is interesting. You need a facial recognition to access your tax transcripts, access your data online from the IRS run by a private company, but not to vote. Uh, by the way, I do mention. I, I want to mention we were talking about the uh, passing of Officer Mora uh, and uh, Officer Jason Rivera. Well, um, following their fatal shooting, our radio station wants to be clear that it's more important than ever to show our police the support and respect that they deserve. So what we're doing this Friday, our radio station, 77 WABC, is asking all Americans to stand and take a moment of silence for one minute at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to honor the true heroes, police officers, people like Jason Rivera, people like Wilbert Mora. You can also show your support for officers Rivera and Mora, their families and friends, and all police personnel by heading over to wabcradio.com slash pin to get a free WABC Back the Blue pin. Totally free. We were not going to ask for your facial recognition or anything. Once you get your pin... Take a selfie, post it to social media with the hashtag 77WABC, um, 77WABCBTB. That's WABCBTB for Back the Blue and let the world know that you back the blue. So, again, if you want this free pin, just go to WABCRadio.com slash pin for this free 77WABC Back the Blue pin and then take a selfie and Put that hashtag, WABCBTB. Join all of us in showing your support for the police. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Mike in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Frank, uh, about your tire woes, my suggestion would be um, get yourself a, a small compressor that plugs into the cigarette lighter um, you can probably get it at Walmart or Home Depot or online. And a pencil gauge, which is about a $2 item, and it has a plastic uh, sleeve that slides out, indicates how much pressure is in each tire. It's just simple, no batteries. And this way you don't have to go to the stations and deal with that because those things are inaccurate. Those gauges are not accurate. You know, that's actually a good idea. What would one of those uh, tire compressor things cost me? I would say probably less than $25, probably, you know, anywhere from 15 to $20. Is that all? Really? Okay. Well, I'm going to buy one today if that's yeah. the case. I mean, the more expensive, probably better quality. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Good stuff. Appreciate that. 800-848-WABC. Joe is in Ron Kunkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. I was just following the other guy. Uh, I worked on, before I went to the field that I'm in now, uh, I was a mechanic for 15 years. Uh, with your car, um, with the light on and everything, um, the reason why you, it's very necessary to have those little caps on the uh, valve stems, it keeps out the dirt and moisture because behind that valve stem, Frank, is a sensor. And um, when you're filling your car up with air, if you're at a gas station, if you keep your car in, like, valet or running, it actually, the horn will beep once to let you know that the tire is full, twice if it's over full. And it's very, if your light is still on, it could mean that you have a sensor that's bad. And those sensors, you should get it checked out at a shop or something. 
they could uh, they could tell you right away because uh, they they can get very expensive, and you don't want to play around, especially with your little baby in the car. Maybe you have a nail in the tire, and you don't want to get a blowout. But it's uh, very important to get that checked out. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. Absolutely right. Thank you. I will do that. Corey is in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. Uh, so yeah, I was I was following them with the tire thing. Uh, you're not gonna. It's not gonna flatten your tire immediately, so you don't have to go crazy about that. Because kids used to steal them, like nice ones, put them on their bikes. But do get one. Um, and the, the air compressor, same thing. I've saved my cousin. You know. You have a spare tire. Everybody, you know, you got a spare tire, but it sits in the trunk, and it'll sit there for, you know, five, ten years. You take your spare tire out after you've changed everything, and the tire's flat. So one of those little air compressors that you just plug into, like, the cigarette lighter thing, that's an excellent yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to order one this week. Uh, thank you, Corey. 800-848-WABC. Patty is in Oradell, New Jersey. Hello, Patty. Hi. Um, I'm calling on the ID.me. I am still on unemployment for the last year and a half through New Jersey, believe it or not. I only have a couple of more weeks to go. Mm. And at my age, I'm sticking it out. But uh, I had to sign on to uh, ID.me in order to um, do uh, get unemployment. And anybody who wants to get their unemployment through New Jersey has to have ID.me also. And, yes, I did have to go through that facial recognition, and then I actually had to speak to somebody in order to validate who I was. Um, I, It is what it is, but there was so much fraud. That's what I wanted to say. There was so much fraud during the uh, pandemic that that's why they seem to that's why they instituted the ID.me to um, uh, prevent uh, reduce the amount of fraud that was occurring with getting unemployment, and that's why I wanted to tell you. Oh no, that to tire. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, thanks, thanks, Patty. And I'm not I'm not disputing the need to uh, combat fraud at all, and I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, but I have major concerns with us needing to give all this data to a private company and just hope that they don't use it for nefarious purposes. And, look, you're entitled to those unemployment benefits. You paid into them. And now you have to upload this photo of your face in order to get benefits that you're entitled to. Well, there's a lot of people, as I mentioned, uh, older folks, poor folks that aren't experienced using smartphones or computers or things like that. And um, I don't think that they should have to do it. I think they should. we should work out some other way. Look, I'm all for rooting out unemployment fraud. I recognize how rampant it is. I, I, I have just a bad feeling about this. Johnny is in Dover, New Jersey. Hello, Johnny. Johnny, Frankie, how you doing? Apologize. Listen, uh, the lady just before you, Patty, she said the exact same thing I was going to say. I'm on unemployment in Jersey, and you have to go through this ID me thing in order to collect anything benefits. It's horrible. I mean, plain and simple, it's a terrible way to, to do business. And you, you, what you just said is correct. I mean, hey, listen, I paid into it my whole. I'm 54 years old. My whole life, I paid into it. I need it now, and it's like you get the runaround. 
and nobody knows nothing when you call up Trenton. You get absolutely zero help. And with the ID me, after you do the ID me, they tell you you have to wait seven to ten business days in order for you to get approved. But yet, uh, I owe the state uh, like two hundred bucks from last year because I didn't have uh, no health insurance. They know right where I'm at because they send the bill right to my house. So they know who I'm at. They, I mean, they know who I am. This is horrible thing, what's going on in this state. And thank God for you because no one's talking about it. Nowhere. That's all you got to say. Well, thank you. I I, show, buddy. You're very kind, Johnny, and good luck uh, with uh, the unemployment and everything like that. Sorry that uh, you seem to have fallen on, uh, on tough times. I, I mean, look, need I say more? I think I needn't. Hey, um, you may have to pay taxes on the $1,000 you're about to win. We've given away $1,000 twice within the last three days uh, to the winner of the $1,000 Minute. If you think you've got what it takes to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then give us a call right now to 1-800-848-9222, where the seventh caller will be the proud recipient of... $1,000, 1000 1-800-848-9222. These are relatively simple trivia questions. These are trivia questions that are not exceptionally difficult. And uh, they are trivia questions that uh, if you have what it takes, and if you've never participated in the contest before, start dialing now, 800-848-9222. We're also going to talk with George Beebe about the Russia situation in just a minute. But Melvin in the Bronx has been patiently holding. Melvin, what's on your mind? Melvin! All right, Melvin has other priorities. All right, I do want to remind you, if you have not already done so, please uh, make sure to follow our Facebook page at facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. And uh, you can also join our Facebook group, uh, Facebook at um, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's meant to be a forum for discussing the subjects that we cover on this show. It's meant to be a forum for allowing listeners to engage with one another respectfully. There was some guy on there yesterday, and I don't care what people say about me. They're welcome to say whatever they want. But there's some guy on there yesterday that's um, comparing all the the other listeners to white supremacists. I mean, give it a break. Give it a rest. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing with people about how they view certain subjects that we cover on the show. I don't care whether it's taxes, UFOs, or free air. But uh, there's no need to attack anybody personally, except me. I'm opening the door to attacking me. But don't attack anybody else that listens to this show. I'm so grateful to have so many listeners to this show that uh, the last thing I want is people attacked just for the privilege of uh, of listening to this show. Uh, all right, 800-848-9222 if you want to play the $1,000 Minute. And uh, we're going to talk with George Beebe and Russia in just a moment. You can also email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Before we get to George Beebe, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Let's meet today's contestant, Derek, in Westchester. Hello there, Derek. Hi, how are you? I am doing just fine. I'll be doing even better if you're $1,000 wealthier 60 seconds from now. 
I will also doing be doing better than hopefully. All right, so Derek, you're you're familiar with this contest, right? Okay, and you've known uh, it's, we've been on a hot streak. People have been doing really well with it, so hopefully that streak continues with you. All right, that's what I'm hoping. Okay, uh, don't get flustered. Think about the question, answer it, and then I'm going to move on right to the next question. If you answer correctly, so that we can get through all ten of these in sixty seconds. You ready to go? Ready. How many states are there in the United States? Fifty. What desserts at a Chinese restaurant just might tell your future? Fortune cookie. What's the square root of 16? Four. Who was the last appo- uh, the last person appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> a correct answer was uh, Amy Coney Amy Barrett, Coney Barrett. Uh, the uh, last appointee yeah. that uh, President Trump made. A good guess, though. Uh, Kavanaugh was appointed prior to Justice Barrett. But uh, give Derek a, a consolation prize. Derek, hang on hold. Give Ryan your information. We'll send you something. And, by the way, if anybody wants any merchandise from this show, just go to WABCRadioStore.com. You can search The Other Side of Midnight, search Morano, and uh, all sorts of cool stuff comes up. Mugs, hats, shirts, you name it. WABCRadioStore.com. George Beebe joins me straight ahead. W-A-B-C 77 W-A-B-C Where the action is We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 W-A-B-C Now, here's Frank Morano. Запыленной связки старых писем Мне случайно встретилось одно Где строка, похожая на бисер Расплылась в лилое пятно Что же мы тогда не поделили These are the musical stylings of former Soviet premier Mikhail Gorbachev Still going strong, even though he's about 90 years old. Um, If you look at the news, you see the headlines about what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. And it is, as Yogi would say, it is getting late early. Uh, There's talks of troops being deployed. There's talks of sanctions. There's talks of invasions. It is not looking good if you want to avoid a conflict. Now, what the scope of that conflict is, whether it involves just Russia and Ukraine or whether it involves Great Britain, United States, and more broadly, NATO, we're going to have to see. Uh, But we've been trying to lay out all the information for you, help you have a more thorough understanding of the Russia-Ukraine situation beyond the narrow, narrow window that you see into what's going on in Eastern Europe on most of the mainstream media. And we've been trying to bring you experts to showcase different aspects of this situation. Now, if there's one problem with our next guest is that he is way too overqualified to be up at 4.30 in the morning talking to me. He is not only the vice president and director of studies at the Center for National Interest. He's not only the author of one of the best books I've ever read on recent Russian-American relations, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe. But he spent more than two decades in government service. He was an intelligence analyst, a diplomat, 
a policy advisor. He was uh, he's, uh, was a director of the CIA's Russia Analysis Unit. He was also a special advisor to Vice President Cheney on Russia. He's got a master's degree. On top of that, he speaks both Russian and German. So clearly, you could tell the one problem with George Beebe is he has no idea what he's talking about. George, it is always great to talk with you. I really appreciate you getting up this early. Well, Frank, thanks for asking. All right. Uh, it is um, really looking uh, quite precarious in, in terms of the Syria, uh, the uh, Ukraine situation. And a lot of the scenarios that you seem to caution about in your book, The Russia Trap, seem to be coming to fruition. How do you see things right now? Well, I think it is quite a precarious situation. Um, I think we're headed toward probably the most dangerous and most significant confrontation with the Russians since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 between the United States and Soviet Union. So uh, we we have to treat this with a, with a great deal of seriousness. Well, how do you think President Biden is doing in terms of his handling of the situation, both in terms of action and sort of rhetoric on the world stage? Well, uh, so far, I think we're struggling to figure out how to deal with this problem. Um, And the one thing that I think is most important to the Russians, the one thing that that there is that is their bottom line on all of this, which is uh, Ukrainian membership potentially in NATO or uh, NATO being involved militarily in Ukraine, even if Ukraine is not a formal NATO alliance member. That issue is the one thing that we've said we're not going to talk to the Russians about. That's off the table. It's non-negotiable. As long as that's true, I think we're going to be headed toward a disaster in Ukraine. Um, We've focused exclusively on trying to punish and deter the Russians from taking any action militarily in Ukraine, which is only part of what needs to be done. We have to couple that firmness with a willingness to accommodate what I think are legitimate Russian concerns about uh, a hostile military alliance on its border in a country that is probably the most important country in the world for Russian security interests, uh, for its uh, economic relationships with Europe and the world, and for its longstanding cultural ties. Uh, with Ukraine. So we're we're really playing with fire right now. And we need to, to ask ourselves, why is it that we're insisting that NATO uh, have this robust military relationship with a country on Russia's border? What is the compelling national interest that's driving that? For well, us? well, that's that's been the question that I've been asking. And people on the left, like Katrina Vanden Heuvel, have been asking the question. And people on the right, like Tucker Carlson, have been asking that same question. Uh, let me ask you, what is the rationale for the continued expansion of NATO right up until Russia's borders? And why is it so important to the American interests, uh, foreign policy? or any otherwise, for us to uh, continue to to not take the issue of Ukraine membership in NATO off the table? Well, um, I don't think the logic is actually very compelling for this. It's rooted in a vision that we had way back in the early 1990s of Europe whole and free. That was the, the buzz phrase that we used. Um, And we wound up with a situation where the United States felt that uh, NATO had to be the security organization that governed Europe. 
the problem with that was the Russians never bought into that idea. The Russians thought that they would be uh, a player in Europe, that they would have a voice in how European security issues were being handled, and that they could object if the NATO alliance were doing things that they felt threatened their own security. That's not how things evolved. We ended up in a situation where NATO was the dominant security organization in Europe. Russia didn't have a voice in NATO decisions. Um, and Russia was on the outside looking in. And they objected to that situation from the very start. It wasn't just Putin doing this recently. Uh, Boris Yeltsin, way back in 1994, gave a speech uh, saying if NATO continued to try to do this, that Europe would be plunged in what he called a cold peace. Well, that's exactly what happened. Mm. And today, uh, the Russians aren't just sitting on the sidelines objecting. They now have the power to say, look, uh, we can prevent NATO from moving further eastward. We've been complaining for nearly 30 years. Now we have the power to make sure it doesn't happen. So the question the United States has before it, I believe, is not whether Russia should have a veto over NATO's enlargement, uh, but whether Russia exercises a de facto uh, veto of NATO enlargement on the battlefield or whether we strike some sort of diplomatic compromise at the negotiating table. That's our choice. So let's talk about the situation at the negotiating table. I guess one of the uh, positives is that at least the United States and Russia are still talking, at least the Ukrainian government and Russian governments are still talking. What should we, we being the United States, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, what should we be doing right now, either uh, operationally or rhetorically? If you were advising the president and the secretary of state, what would you be advising them to do? Well, first of all, we need to take this out of the headlines, out, out from in front of the television cameras and talk to the Russians seriously, quietly in private diplomatic negotiations. The more this is a public issue, um, the less able uh, each side is going to be to find a mutually acceptable compromise without losing face. Uh, there's been far too much public negotiation, far too much grandstanding on both sides uh, to, to actually find a way out. Um, the second thing I think we need to do is not focus exclusively on using sticks, exclusively on punishment and deterrence and sanctions and the threat of military force. The United States is in no position to use military force here. There's a great imbalance in conventional capabilities between Russia and the United States and NATO in Europe. We like to think of the Russians as weak, as uh, a declining power, as not able to do much militarily. That used to be the case 20, 30 years ago. It's not the case today. The Russians have an overwhelming advantage conventionally in dealing with the situation in Ukraine. And the United States can't come close to matching that right now. What we need to do is to combine firmness with accommodation. And going back to that uh, 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, that was a situation where President Kennedy combined the threat of military force. He explicitly threatened the Soviets with attacking their missile inst installations in Cuba 
with a willingness to find a deal. And ultimately, the way out of that crisis was we agreed to do some things that the Soviets wanted us to do. Kennedy said, "Okay, I will pledge not to invade Cuba, not to try to remove the communist government there. And Kennedy also struck a secret bargain where we removed uh, Jupiter medium range um, missiles, nuclear missiles that were stationed in Italy and uh, in Turkey in return for the Russians removing their missiles from Cuba. So it wasn't just a case where we were firm and the Russians backed down that they blinked when they came eyeball to eyeball with us, as we later said. We actually struck a bargain, and we should have. That was the way to handle it. And that's what we need to do today, to find a mutually acceptable bargain that allows each side to uh, save political face here. I I love everything that you just said. And the people just tuning in, we're talking with George Beebe, Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for the National Interest, also the author of a wonderful book, which uh, will give you a great primer into U.S.-Russian relations. It's a short book, and it's written in terms that even laymen like me can understand. It's called The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe. What you just said is refreshingly free of hyperbole. It's refreshingly fact-based. It's refreshingly free of ideology. And unfortunately, it's exactly the kind of thing that we seem to not be hearing from both Democrats and Republicans in Washington these days. For the most part, both the Democrats and Republicans seem to be racing to see who could be using a bigger, stronger stick uh, uh, towards Russia. Given the fact that that's the case, that we have, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a foreign policy establishment that has so far only shown a willingness to use sticks. um, What do you think are the best and worst case scenarios at this point as it relates to this present situation? Well, the best case scenario is we find some sort of mutually acceptable compromise. That doesn't appear to be the track that we're on right now, however. Uh, We seem to be on a track that uh, will wind up in some sort of Russian military action uh, in Ukraine. Now, if that happens, there are all kinds of bad things that could flow from that. Um, One of them uh, is that we wind up in a, a permanent division of Ukraine, a very unstable redivision of Europe between uh, the collective West, the United States and and its uh, NATO allies on the one hand, and Russia and uh, its partners on the other. Um, That's, I think, a disaster for Europe, a disaster for the Ukrainian people themselves, and a disaster for for U.S. security, because uh, we will have to rearm uh, NATO in Europe to deal with that division. Um, it, it will be tense. It will require a lot of resources and, and focus. And this will occur during a period when our biggest challenge in the world geostrategically is China. And what we will have done is greatly handicap our ability to marshal our resources to deal with China We will have driven Russia into China's arms, reinforced what is becoming a de facto entente between Russia and China, and really handicapped our ability to deal with this challenge. Uh, Russia and China together are far more formidable, far more difficult for us to deal with than a situation where we've reached some sort of understanding with the Russians 
that will allow the Russians to be much more of, a, of an independent player, not allied with the United States or with China, um, which complicates China's strategic outlook. Now, the very worst situation, one that I wrote about in the book, is that the, this confrontation with Russia spirals into a direct military confrontation between the United States and Russia that could quite precariously uh, escalate to nuclear levels. Mm. Now, neither Russia nor the United States wants that to happen. Obviously, that would be a disaster. But because of cyber warfare, because of the, the mixing of conventional and nuclear command and control issues, we could get into that escalation scenario if we're not extremely careful here just because of, of the, the way things are interconnected today in, in ways that they weren't back in the Cold War days. So this is a very precarious situation. Oh, that, that it is. Now, keeping in mind what you said a couple of minutes ago that you'd like to see an approach that wasn't all sticks – uh, is one of the sticks that the president has been using, the threat of greater sanctions, is that an appropriate stick? I mean, it seems to me that we've been sanctioning Russia a great deal since the annexation of Crimea, and these sanctions don't seem to be doing very much to change Russian behavior. Is it appropriate for the president and Secretary Blinken to be continuing to threaten sanctions? Well, I think it is if that is coupled to a broader negotiating strategy that is aimed at incentivizing a deal, a compromise here. If you think that sanctions by themselves will compel the Russians to back off unless they're coupled to a carrot, I think, I think you're wrong. Um, this is an existential issue for the Russians. They think their survival is at stake in Ukraine. We did the same thing uh, with J Imperial Japan prior to World War II. We thought we could impose on Imperial Japan such draconian sanctions, uh, cutting them off essentially from being able to, to get access to oil and, and other strategic resources that were vital to Japan's survival. We thought that that would compel the Japanese to back off of their expansionism in Asia. But what we misread was that the, the Japanese didn't think their expansion in Asia was discretionary. Um, they thought that they absolutely had to secure Japan against China, the Soviet Union, the United States. So when we squeezed them that hard, they felt they had no choice but to attack us in order to preserve their own existence. That's where I think the Russians are with Ukraine right now. If we think that we can squeeze them into submission, I think we're very wrong. That kind of an approach is more than likely going to be a trigger, not a deterrent to what the Russians are doing. It's fine if we're saying, hey, look, we're giving you an option, either these sanctions or, hey, let's make a deal. In that kind of scenario, I think that they're appropriate, but not if we think by themselves that they're going to squeeze the Russians into uh, backing down in Ukraine. You know, I love the comp uh, the comparison to Japan prior to World War II. 
The only other person that I've heard raise that comparison is actually the owner of our radio station, John Katsimatidis, who's an oil man who is uh, uh, very big in the oil business. And he's raised exactly the same specter and said exactly the same thing in terms of uh, Japan being a cautionary tale for some of the same same reasons. In terms of uh, one of the policies that we've seen under both the Biden and Trump administration, we, the American taxpayers and the American government, have been providing military aid to Ukraine, lethal military aid. Uh, How effective has that been, this policy under both Trump and Biden, of giving lethal military aid to the Ukrainian government to combat Ukrainian separatists and perhaps the Russian army? Well, um, this by itself is not going to change the balance of military forces between Ukraine and Russia. Um, The Ukrainian military is far outmatched when dealing with the Russian military. They can't bring to bear the kind of ground combat forces, the kind of air power, the kind of rocket and artillery power that the the Russian military can. And uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles and and Stinger anti-aircraft missiles aren't going to come close to changing that imbalance. Um, And... Anything that the United States could give to Ukraine right now would take a long time for the Ukrainian military to observe it, to absorb it, uh, to learn how to use it effectively on the battlefield. Uh, essentially, this is symbolic. Um, so I, I don't think this is going to matter at all other than to uh, further trigger the Russians into acting on the battlefield now rather than waiting for two years when the Ukrainians might be better able to resist Uh, some sort of invasion. I I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. It's almost the equivalent of smacking a pit bull in the face. That's not going to make the difference between the pit bull not biting you or not. It's just going to make the pit bull angrier. George, I uh, could talk with you for hours. Whenever we speak, I feel as if I've gotten a collegiate education in foreign policy. Thank you for the great work that you're doing in terms of furthering understanding of uh, Russia-U.S. relations, and uh, I appreciate you getting up so early for us. Thanks, Craig. My Uh, pleasure. George Beebe, check out his book, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral Into Catastrophe. It's an absolute must-read. How he ever worked for Dick Cheney is something I will never understand, but I don't have to understand it. Uh, It's a great book, nonetheless, irrespective of who he worked for. Hey, I want to remind you that, uh, hey, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in two minutes. Start queuing up 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222 for 15 seconds of fame. I want to remind you, if you haven't already done so, be sure to purchase some Life Change Tea. Uh, Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com is a wonderful product. It is a gentle Daily cleanse that tastes great and works to get things moving. Stress can wreak havoc on our digestive tract. And if you're feeling stopped up and bloated, it is bad news. Life Change Tea can help that. It's all natural. It's non-GMO. One package will last an entire month. It's only available by going to the website getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. Use the promo code FRANK to get yourself some free shipping. They have a ton of other great products on there. Getthetea.com, promo code FRANK. Whatever you end up buying on there, uh, just use my promo code FRANK at getthetea.com, and you will be 
the proud recipient of free shipping anywhere in these United States. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. WABC. Start your morning with Frank Morano on 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, so in the um, – I want to thank Mediaite. They did an article. They were the only media outlet at this point anyway that did an article uh, featuring any of the incredibly news-making interview that I did with Roger Stone yesterday. So kudos to Mediaite. Uh, if you don't read Mediaite, you can – Read that article on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. I thought there was going to be a ton more news that came out of that. But, uh, you know, at least we got this Mediaite article. So you can go to facebook.com slash Morano fan. If you're on Facebook, be sure to join the Facebook uh, group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. One person in the Facebook group asked me to repeat the website to get your free Back the Blue pin. I've got one of these. They're great pins. I believe they were designed by Margot Katsimatidis, and she certainly has an eye for fashion and an eye for aesthetics. If you have not yet done so and you want your Back the Blue pin, go to wabcradio.com slash pin. It's free. Get your free pin Take a selfie, post it to social media with the hashtag 77WABCB2B, back the blue. And we are doing on Friday morning at 9 a.m., we are leading a citywide, even a nationwide moment of silence for these two police officers that were killed. Officers Jason Rivera and Wilbert Mora, two real heroes. So that's going to be 9 a.m. Friday morning. But if you want your pin, just go to WABCRadio.com slash pin. In the meantime, if you want to be famous for 15 seconds, now's the time to do just that. 800-848-9222 because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Melchior is in Manhattan. Hello. Morano, I'm calling to commend you and to thank you for the outstanding program you just had with uh, George Beebe. And in general, to commend you and to encourage you to continue the beautiful variety and assembly of various topics with which you deal and it makes it for an interesting program for a wide segment of the audience thank you melchior i wish we had more than 15 seconds for you jesse's in westchester thank you jesse john is in brooklyn yeah i think we need to uh keep our eyes on china and reconsider whether we want russia will allow Russia into NATO. Cheech is in Howard Beach. Hey, New York City conservative and Republican voters, stop beating your heads against the walls. Switch to the Democratic Party and destroy it from the inside. Mark in Westchester. 
Yes, Frank, I told my lovely little daughter you gave her a birthday wish, and it made her day when I called yesterday. It made her day, sir. Thank you so much. Wonderful. I hope she had a happy birthday. Jimmy in Queens. Susan Moran. Neil on Staten Island. Hochul and Adams, two phonies who said they want to fight crime, but yet still support a sanctuary state and city to hide criminals. You heard it from me first, Frank. Mark in New Haven. Frank, I want to blame the Ukrainian crisis on the Clintons. H.W. Bush promised Gorbachev not to expand NATO. Clinton did it anyway. Professor Cohn said it was to sell American arms. And then Secretary Clinton with the Russian hoax. And And finally, Patty in Ozone Park. Yes, uh, I want to talk about Cuba. I've been to Cuba. My sister-in-law is Cuba. How come the president doesn't help the people with the Cuban people so it's close? Thank you, Patty. That slams the lid on things for today. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.